Mankind is rapidly developing robots that can make the decision to apply lethal force. And when that moment comes, when robots can decide who and when to kill, it will bring about a power shift in which autonomous Terminators will be fighting our wars. They'll never make ethical decisions. They make their share of mistakes, whether based upon faulty data sets or, um, or bad programming. And they'll kill by mistake sometimes, and, or they'll kill the wrong person. And unlike a human being, they'll never regret it. Which raises the question, what happens when robots become smarter than us? You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 67. 67. And uh, we have a very interesting conversation for you guys today. Yes, very interesting indeed. Uh, is there anything we want to touch on before we jump into it, Basil? Uh, no, well, I mean, this is just a, a very, very mind-melting conversation. Very good. I enjoyed it a lot. Just keep in mind, and we'll get into this more in the interview, but uh, this guy is a very learned man and uh, is semi-well-known within the transhumanist sort of, I don't know, conversation it is not technically a christian but again we'll get into that more in the uh, conversation yeah. so yeah just be ready to to expand your scientific view of the universe you'll notice that the sound quality on this episode is a little bit different than um, many of our episodes from the past and that is because um, our guest is in china and China apparently is very hard to get a good connection to America over the internet um, uh, for reasons that are also addressed in the podcast. So uh, you will hear the sound quality be a little bit less than usual, but just bear with us and um, I promise that it'll Actually, be worth it. I I'm going to sound crystal clear just because oh. I'm special. Okay. Um, Dr. Hugo Daguerre sounds like he's on a phone and, and Basil sounds like... You're going to be on a phone, so yeah, it's really just you guys. I'm fine. Okay, well, <laughs> there you go. So you guys got everything you need. You got the crystal clear vibrations of Gonza's um, soothing voice in your ear, and me and our guest will sound like um, we're on a telephone. Rotary just, phone. Just to reiterate everything you just said. Um, <laughs> okay, here we go. All right. Our guest today is Professor Hugo de Garris. He's an Australian native and a researcher in the subfield of artificial intelligence known as evolvable hardware. He became known in the 90s for his research on the use of genetic algorithms to evolve neural networks using three-dimensional cellular automata inside field programmable gate arrays. Whatever that means. Maybe we'll find out. He claimed that this approach would enable the creation of what he terms artificial brains, which would quickly surpass human levels of intelligence. He has a PhD from Brussels University, Belgium, and he's written two books, Multis and Monos, What the Multicultured Can Teach the Monocultured Towards the Growth of a Global State, and 
the more fascinating one that I think we'll talk about today, the Artelect War, Cosmists versus Terrans, a bitter controversy concerning whether humanity should build godlike, massively intelligent machines. It's an honor to have Professor Hugo de Garris on Canary Cry Radio. Hey, Hugo, how you doing? Yeah, hi, uh, Gons and, uh, Gons and Bezel? Yep, that's us. So, uh, how you doing over there in China right now? Mm, it's uh, 2 a.m. in the morning. That, that's, that's fine for me because I'm a night person. I'm retired, and I do what I like, and yeah. I, I like the peace of the night. So, I'll, I'll be awake until um, probably about 6 a.m., then I go to sleep. <laughs> You're a madman. <laughs> I'm free! <laughs> <laughs> and just so everybody knows here on the show, we have been trying to get a clear connection with Dr. Hugo for it's a good, good 48 hours now. that we've been trying. And, um, yeah, and we've had we've had fractions of this conversation um, at least once before, and so we're just gonna keep on trucking, and you guys can uh, listen in, and you know, here we go. Okay, so Dr. Hugo, why don't you start out by just giving us a little bit about your background and what you do, and um, you know, what kind of I don't know. Chinese food you like to eat, things like that. Okay. Well, uh, I'm 67. I've been retired for four years. I've been living in China for about eight years. Uh, the place is a shithole. Um, <laughs> I've lived in, so I grew up in Australia and then England, Holland, Belgium. Uh, Japan, America, and China. So I'm a, I label, label myself a multi, meaning multicultured. Uh, why China? Why? Well, uh, a couple of years before I retired, I was starting to build China's first artificial brain. So that that was my specialty in mm. uh, the general field of artificial intelligence. And I, I would evolve uh, neural networks. So they behave sort of like uh, brain cells, but in electronic form. And I would evolve uh, in a kind of Darwinian way in, in electronics, the uh, connections between these uh, brain cells. And the ones that by chance performed well, they survived. And the ones that didn't, well, they got killed off. So uh, using uh, supercomputers, I could evolve neural net circuits that uh, perform quite well. I mean, they'd see things and they'd recognize words and make decisions. And so I'd put tens of thousands of these evolved circuits together and make artificial wow. brains. Wow. And, and, and then uh, I started getting ambitious and thinking, hey, uh, you know, there's real potential in this. Let, let me try and uh, persuade the, the Chinese, uh, well, the equivalent of in the U.S. of state government. They're, they're called provinces here. So um, I, I started uh, politicking a bit, and I think I made a mistake. <laughs> I thought I had the personal confidence of the president of my university. <laughs> but uh, he turned out to be a real commie. I, I was telling him, look, you're not going to get large numbers of Westerners until, until China democratizes. And the next thing I know, I'm fired. Wow. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's a bit hole. Anyway, so uh, in some ways it was a blessing in disguise because then I started, uh, I, I became free. I, I realized I had enough money from my uh, pension that, that when I was a prof in, in America, that was in, uh, in Utah, in, uh, so I was, at, I was at, at one of the state universities. So uh, I started doing some math back of the envelope 
type calculations and hey, I can afford to retire because the cost of living in China is something like, well, then about seven times cheaper. So uh, I said, yeah, I could retire. So, so I did. And then I completely switched careers. I went out of uh, brain building and back to my first love, which was math and physics. Uh, in the 70s, I was, I was a grad student in, in, those, well, in math and physics in London under a famous professor. But there were no jobs because you know, I'm a baby boomer, you know, 67, so I was born two years after the end of World War II. And so all those uh, undergrads, you know, my age, uh, the people who taught them, those, those profs were quite young. Um, a lot of them had been hired because of such a mass influx of uh, university students of, of my age then. So there are no, uh, no vacancies, right? Uh, these guys wouldn't retire for decades. So it dawned on me I was never going to get a job, so I'd have to move into something else. So I chose artificial intelligence, which, which struck me as fascinating because you know, how on earth would you get a machine to, to be intelligent, you know, to, to remember things and understand things and see things and talk and, and on all that stuff? And you behave in a way that uh, if human beings did the same thing, people would say, oh, that's intelligent. So right. I got into that. And then uh, bit by bit, gradually, it wasn't a sudden thing, but I became more and more conscious that, my God, the potential of these machines in the future with, with uh, you know, rapidly advancing uh, technologies, especially one phenomenon called Moore's Law. Uh, have you heard of that? Yes, you know what right. yeah. yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people, it's a part of general edu- education nowadays, I guess. So for those who don't know, Moore's Law is simply, it's based on Gordon Moore. Um, he was one of the founders of the famous uh, microchip company, Intel, that everyone's heard of. And he noticed in the mid-60s that the number of transistors you could cram onto a chip was doubling pretty well every year or two. And so I started doing some maths and I said, my God, I mean, you know, pretty soon by, by around the year 2020, you'll have uh, the, the computing capacity will be vastly superior to, to what the human brain can do. In fact, today, to, you know, literally uh, uh, 20, well, 2013, 2014, uh, the state-of-the-art supercomputers now have more or less an equal uh, processing ability, in other words, in bits, you know, bits of information per second, right. as the human brain. Wow. We, the, our supercomputers have now equaled at least in bits per second, not, not in intelligence yet, but at least in bits per second, we're now equal to the human brain. Right. And, of course, we, we'll sail on way past uh, what the human brain can do. You know, with this, this doubling keeps occurring every year or so. So then, then I start calculating, well, oh, my God, what if, um, what if nano, if you heard of nanotechnology, mm-hmm. you know, mo- molecular-scale machines, little, little tiny robots the size of molecules, Nanotech, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we yeah. We actually did an episode. Uh, uh, we interviewed a nanoscientist a couple episodes ago. So so we're very fresh on our uh, on our I guess nanotech. nanotech. Uh, yeah, jive. Okay. Well, so then uh, sitting in the park a couple of years back, this is in China. I asked myself the question: Well, if I took just a single grain of sand and nanotech it in such a way that on just one atom, uh, I could manipulate one bit of information. So, so have the atom change 
uh, oscillating back and forth um, between excited state, not excited, excited, not excited, and so on. It could flip back and forth in a femtosecond. It's a thousandth of a trillionth of a second. And it's not too difficult. You can estimate how many atoms there'd be in that uh, little grain of sand, that, that cubic millimeter. Right. And eventually I worked out the computing capacity of that nanotech single grain of sand would outperform the human brain uh, equivalent, you know, information processing uh, rate of the human brain wow. by a factor of something like uh, a quintillion, like, like a, oh. a, a million trillion times. And, and that just sort of hit me. I said, oh, my God. I mean, if, if, if human beings in the future, if you heard of cyborgs, another technical, t- you know what a cyborg sure. is? yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, uh, well, again, for listeners who don't know, a cyborg, that's short for cybernetic organism. In other words, uh, part machine, part human. So, so a human being, for example, who starts adding uh, you know, this little grain of sand that's been nanotech to, to their human brain, if they did that, uh, strictly speaking, they'd be a cyborg, but in practice, uh, they, they would be almost, almost pure machine because this little grain of sand would outperform the human brain by a factor of uh, a quintillion, you know, a million trillion times. So wow. that, that cyborg would be 99.9999999999% machine and only 0.0001% human, right? Wow. So uh, that, that really hit home to me at an emotional level, and I thought, oh, my God, this, this technological capacity is so vast that it's only a question of time before humanity is going to have to face up to the writing on the wall. Sure. Right. And, and ask ourselves, are we, you know, when I say we, I mean the human species, are we going to remain the dominant species or will we let our machines take over? And if they do take over, they could take over massively. We're not talking about like a machine that's like twice as intelligent as a human being or five times or ten times. Uh, try a trillion, trillion times greater. Right. When you say take over, do you mean like in a military uh, robot army sense or just like an intellectual sense? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thinking along these lines, maybe not as explicitly with those huge numbers, but uh, certainly along those lines in the 80s, uh, and so eventually I thought, well, look, yeah, I, I should put these ideas on paper. So I, I wrote a book. Uh, late late 80s, and uh, at that stage, when I was writing it, I, I felt like a weirdo. You know, <laughs> maybe two or three other people on the planet having similar ideas. And then in the, the, and, and the title of that book was called The Artelect War. I'd explain this term, artelect. It's short for artificial intellect, so uh, an artificial mind or an artificial brain, or an artificial intelligence. You know, they're all much the same thing. And uh, the book was called you know, The Artelect War. And I was predicting that uh, when, when push really comes to shove, when, when people, when whole industries start making highly intelligent uh, artificial brains, which control home robots and zillions of other applications, but particularly home robots, when, when millions, if not billions of people 
in a decade or so from now, um, and maybe even less, when their home robots start uh, closing the, I call it the IQ gap, that's the, uh, the intelligence gap between human level and machine level, when that gap really starts to close, then people will start getting alarmed. You can imagine every I don't know, year or two or three, they will update their home robot. And, and because it's such a huge industry, there'll be an enormous uh, number of researchers and professors and you know, engineers and, and people thrown at the problem to improve the product every year. So every time the, someone goes out and buys the next version of their home robot, they're going to notice how much smarter it is compared to their previous version. The, the vocabulary will be richer and it'll have a sense of humor and cynical and it can do more tasks uh, and it'll wisecrack and, and, and so on. And so human beings, at, at first, they'll be amused and amazed and say, oh, you know, <laughs> my home robot's great, you know. <laughs> But, but as the IQ gap closes, like, like when it starts getting, having the intelligence of like a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old, you know, uh, then all that amusement and bemusement will shift to uh, a growing anxiety. You know, people start becoming worried. They'll, they'll see the writing on the wall. Right. And then you've got, you got lots of professors uh, and researchers saying, oh, that's nothing. You wait. <laughs> and they'll, they'll you know, trot out all these big numbers like just what I've been doing. And then, uh, then people will start feeling alarmed. Now, uh, this, this is not some distant 22nd century science fiction, maybe. Uh, I, I'm reckoning probably the, this uh, IQ gap will be closing, starting to close in the, in the 2020s. It's as, it's as soon as that. So most of your listeners wow. uh, will, be, will be alive. And as a result of this uh, IQ gap closing, uh, I anticipate a great debate. Uh, I call it the species dominance debate. And by species dominance, I mean um, the question who or what should be dominant species. And by dominant, I mean the most intelligent. Now, as human beings, we, we've been uh, dominant for, oh God, hundreds of thousands of years. We're the, we're the top species because we're the, the most intelligent. And so the species dominance debate is all about whether, whether or not humanity decides to give up that status. Are we right. going to give it to the machines or are we going to keep it ourselves? Now, it sounds a bit, it's still a bit science fiction-y, but uh, it, in, you know, in a decade or two or three, it will become very real and people will be convinced of that. They'll see with their own eyes their home robots, their, as they upgrade their home robots, they'll see the IQ gap close. Mm, right. And then, and then the debate will heat up. You know, people become more passionate about it. So, so I talk about, I divide various phases of the, the level of awareness of this problem into, into, well, phase zero is just you know, when nobody's aware of the issue. Phase one was uh, where I was in the 80s with just a handful of other people so phase one is the intellectuals crying in the wilderness phase. <laughs> and in the 90s, uh, phase two, that's um, the action groups, you know, the interest groups, like, like on the internet, uh, interest groups like uh, Humanity Plus. Um, transhumanism. Transhumanism. And there, there's a lot. There's yeah, there's a, a lot of now. groups. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I document a bunch of them in my film and I, there's... You know, Alba Dipbaron Robotics, uh, Applies Foresight International, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, uh, 
Uh, I mean, the Horizon yeah. 2020. There, there's there's tons. yeah. There's a whole there's a whole bunch of them now. So so uh, Phase Two is well developed, and my feeling now is we're starting to move in a, in a more or less serious way into Phase Three. And Phase Three, I, I label simply mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the media, uh, Hollywood, uh, magazines, you know, that that kind of thing. Now it's uh, what day? What's the date today? It's it's, it's a bit ironic. It's uh, 13th. Now, um, the release date of a major Hollywood uh, Warner Brothers movie, Transcendence, is that tomorrow? Is that the 14th? Is that right? Uh, I believe it's it's soon. Let me double check that while you uh, begin talking about it. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so, and the following year, um, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, is coming out with a similar movie uh, called, you can guess what the movie's about just from the title, Robopocalypse, based, <laughs> based, based on a novel, you know, rather famous science fiction novel. Right. So uh, increasingly, Hollywood is getting the message. You know, they, right. you know, Hollywood, they don't have to do the real work of actually building these artificial brains. Right? They, they just put their fantasies on film. Yeah. But but they're sensing they're sensing that uh, this is becoming uh, you know, less and less science fiction like, and more and more a real possibility. You know, a lot of these you know, smart, creative uh, Hollywood types uh, are sensing that. If I may uh, ask, how much influence do you think that these movies at this part in the game? How much do you think that's going to influence the receptiveness of uh, the? the general public when things like this start coming out in the news and stuff. Like, I mean, I feel like all the movies are like, the robots are going to take over and kill all the humans. And I feel like that could have kind of a negative effect for somebody who's trying to push the benefits of highly intelligent robots and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. Yeah, your, your, your comments are very valid. And you know, <laughs> it's those kinds of questions that are being hotly debated in phase two, you know, amongst all, all these interest groups. And, and mm-hmm. you know, there, there are a whole spectrum of opinions on which way it should go. Uh, now, sort of connected with that, a couple, couple of years back, I got contracted by Warner Brothers to be the technical advisor to a uh, you know, Warner Brothers movie called... called uh, the Twilight Zone. They're, they're going to do a remake. Right. Mm. And so the strongest advice I gave them was, look, try to make the background story of the movie, you know, besides all the usual you know, ingredients of Hollywood, you know, boy, girl, action, you know, all that stuff, because it's got to appeal to an international market. can't be too subtle. <laughs> right. But, but make the background story as realistic as possible to near-future reality, near-future science, and, and I was trying to sell them the vision. Look, um, this debate, you know, this species dominance debate, that's, that's going to be very real in the 2020s, 2030s, uh, even later this decade in the teens. So have that as the background story uh, as the, the home robots start getting smarter and smarter, and then, um, then the, you know, the alarm level will, will rise and then uh, the passion level will rise, and then people start uh, forming vigilante groups, and you'll start seeing the assassinations and the sabotage and the murders and, and the political debate. The temperature will rise. Wow. And, and, you know, and then I started seeing these uh, trailers for 
um, transcendence. And I start thinking, I start, I start getting very suspicious. Hey, hey, <laughs> that's my story. <laughs> so so now, now I, you know, I can't accuse, I don't have any hard evidence, but I'm very suspicious that the following happened. The, the, now, that they put me on an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. Sure. And so, you know, I, I you know, kept my words. I just kept quiet for a couple of years. And then, uh, then I learned that uh, this movie, The Twilight Zone, had died. You know, that, that happens a lot in Hollywood. You know, a lot right. of movies don't, don't make sure. it. And so I said, oh, okay, so my NDA is no longer valid, so I, can, I assume I can speak freely about it. But what I'm suspicious of is given that both these movies, The, the Twilight Zone, and uh, Transcendence are both uh, Warner Brothers, that uh, my message got transferred. That's, that's what I'm suspicious mm. of. And that's very nice for them, because then they don't have to pay me the... You know, the right. you, if the movie gets filmed, then you get X, you know, X thousand dollars. Sure, that was their plan all along. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, so in some ways, if that's what happened, if they were influenced... Um, then, yeah, that's flattering. Uh, uh, I don't know how many of your uh, listeners are aware or have watched the trailers for this movie, Transcendence, but yeah. basically what's happening, and I, I can only judge by the trailer myself. You know, I haven't seen the movie yet. Sure. But the, the, in the trailer, uh, some AI researcher, and now it's, I, I guess the setting is about a decade into the future from now, roughly, maybe a bit more, but, but you know, wildly into the future, just one or two decades, I'd guess. Uh, so the level of artificial intelligence has increased to near human level. These action groups, um, vigilante groups, have uh, you know, they've sprung into being. They're scared stiff, and eventually they they strike, and so they attack uh, AI or artificial brain research groups all over the U.S. And, you know, they they assassinate uh, the the researchers. And they're absolutely passionate about it because they claim, and, and this organization, they call them, in the movie, I call them Terrans, that's in, in my my book, but yeah. in the movie they're called Rift. Yes. Uh, R-I-F-T, uh, what is it? Uh, Forgetting the acronym, what is it? I can't remember the exact acronym. It's um, uh, the, boy. I know that there's. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll remember. And, and the movie is coming yeah, out on the, the movie is coming out on the the eighteenth, which eighteenth. Uh, uh, okay, so that's, that's interesting. So it's uh, very timely. <laughs> anyway, so these these rift people, uh, they're they're really passionate. They feel they're saving humanity. They they don't want uh, human beings to become the number two species. Right. And so uh, they become militant. They become murderous. They 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 uh, you know, they assassinate the the AI researchers. Uh, they uh, destroy the machines. And uh, the the main protagonist, you know, the main guy, that's uh, Johnny Depp in the movie. Uh, he gets assassinated. Oh, and then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so his brain gets uploaded into a computer, Ooh. and then uh, oh, you don't know this? This is news to you. you I'm, I'm aware. Trailer? I'm aware of it. Basil is not. But uh, just just oh, real quick okay. before you move on, Rift is revolutionary independence from technology. So it's kind of a extremist neo luddite hippies. Uh, <laughs> that's a that's a very self ex, uh, self explanatory label. Yeah, it's a good label. Yeah. Yeah. Revolutionary what what, what? Revolutionary independence from technology. Independence. 
independence from technology rift, and and it is a rift, <laughs> a big <laughs> yeah. gap. Okay, so um, so this AI researcher, you know, Johnny Depp in the in the movie as, as the actor, uh, he gets uploaded into a, a machine. So his his consciousness, his his brain structure, if you like, right. is put into uh, an electronic simulation in a in a supercomputer with technology. I don't know, a decade or two into the future. And so then he, he has a girlfriend or his fiance or wife or something. Yeah, the, the female element in the movie has to be in a Hollywood movie. Party. And uh, they, they connect. Um, so she feels that her assassinated boyfriend or husband or whatever is still alive. But st- strange things start happening, like uh, like the Johnny Depp, you know, the, car- the downloaded brain, if you like, in the machine, <laughs> uh, starts requesting, hey, I, I want to be connected to the internet. Uh, I need more power. That's, uh, mm. That was, you know, that famous word, words in the in the movie. Right. I need more power. <laughs> and then, uh, then all sorts of weird things start happening, and uh, I, I, I'm unable to tell you what happened because you know I don't know. I haven't seen the movie yet. But uh, he he becomes incredibly powerful, and and, and uh, his colleagues uh, start saying, "Hey, you got to shut it down. It's too dangerous. You got to you got to shut it down. Shut it down. It's him." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a lot of drama. But anyway, um, this I'm hoping it'll be a very popular movie, at least as popular as say the uh, the Schwarzenegger what was Terminator. The Terminator series, yeah. I, I, hope, it'll, I hope it'll become a, ki- a kind of cult movie there. And the following year will be uh, Robo-Apocalypse. So the, this, the, you know, these two movies, I hope, will be the main thrust into Phase 3 as, as it goes mainstream. And, and now there's so many AI guys and brain builder guys that, that can give their commentary on this stuff mm-hmm. that I'm hoping the magazines and... Uh, you know, television and you know, the media, the main media, will will see this issue. Hey, this is this is not just a piece of science fiction. There's too many of these serious scientist type guys who are saying that's only just like a few decades away. So that that means it's within the lifetimes of, of at least you know, more than half of the of the people who will be uh, listening and watching. So they'll start taking it seriously. So, <clears throat> okay, then phase four. Well, that's what's in the movie. The movie is a phase four uh, movie, in a sense. And and uh, the label I give to phase four is simply politics. Mm. So, uh, you know, as the IQ gap closes, uh, people get become increasingly alarmed. Uh, the species dominance debate will rage. It, 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 I, I see uh, that debate absolutely dominating our global politics this century. Like, if you... Like a little bit of history... <coughs> If you go back, uh, say, to the 19th century and you ask yourself, well, what was the dominant political question in the 19th century? And I, I think, it's, well, you can debate it, but I'd, I'd argue that it's, uh, it was Marx, Karl Marx's question. Who should own capital? In other words, who should own the machines? Who, sh- who should own the factories? Should they be privately owned? Should they be owned by the 
the people who own the capital, or as in, right. you say in French, capitaliste, you know, the people who own the capital, mm-hmm. or should they be owned by everybody? Should they be owned by the state? Should, should they be owned communally? So the communalists, and you can shorten that to communists. So that issue absolutely dominated the our world global politics in the 19th and 20th centuries, like uh, 1962, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. We almost blew ourselves up in World War Three over this this question of uh, who should own capital. But speaking personally, I consider that question relatively trivial compared to this uh, huge question in the 21st century, and that is uh, who or what should be dominant species. Hmm. So this this uh, you're given the fabulous potential of uh, what these machines could become. They, they could become gods. They, they yeah. could become godlike because their capacities are just, just you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of times above what, what human, uh, yeah, the human level. Right. So, so this, this question is, uh, you know, it'll be hotly debated. Um, the, the, your average educated person will be, be as aware of the species dominance debate as, say, global warming or the ozone layer, or overpopulation, or nuclear holocaust, or any of those big issues. So my gut feeling is, I don't know, maybe two or three years from now, the species dominance issue will be just as much a part of the intellectual repertoire of your educated average person. Hmm. Yeah. Whereas, now, whereas today, you know, it's still still pretty fringy. It's still pretty much in right. phase two. It hasn't it hasn't really gone to phase three yet. Right. But once phase three is well developed, you know, and then everyone's talking about it, and then uh, the the home robots really start getting into the home in a big way, and then you know, update one and then update two, and, you know, a new model and so on. And as that IQ gap closes, the the temperature. <clears throat> the temperature of the debate will just rise and rise, right? And, until the action groups, you know, the rifts, or well, I call them terrans, based on the word, not terror, terror as in terrorists, but terra, the earth. Right, yeah. Because, because um, and then I can imagine the philosophers will, will get in on the game and start arguing, you know, providing arguments. And I did that in my book, The Artillery War, because, uh, you know, there are strong arguments both ways. Sure, right? yeah. Um, some, you know, there's a whole like if, if you take the other side, you know, the people who want to build these these godlike creatures, I call them cosmists. Deliberately, it's based on the word cosmos, you know, the universe. Because if these if these godlike creatures, these artilects, if if they get built, what would they do? Would they, they probably would not want to stay on this little hick planet, right? Right. There's a trillion trillion stars out there in the universe. And, and uh, the theorists are saying probably there's even a multiverse. You know, there's, a, there's a whole, you know, it's like a one, our universe would just be one bubble in yeah. a whole foam, right? The multiverse. Sure. Anyway, so, uh, you know, there's strong arguments both ways. That, so humanity then, uh, uh, according to the cosmists, so the ideology would be cosmism, you know, you know, the, the ideology in favor of, of humanity building these artilects, uh, one of their strongest arguments would be almost a, a, a religious one, almost a sort of quasi-religion, but but a religion based on science, right? Because the, these artifacts and the technology and everything are obviously scientifically based, but but it has a definite um, religious aspect to it because 
these these creatures would be immortal. They they may become so intelligent that um, well, uh, side check a little bit. Uh, there's a guy, a uh, professor at MIT, who has the mathematics and the physics model on how to build a baby universe. Wow. Uh, I mean, I've studied it. Now, if human beings can conceive of designing a universe, who yeah. knows, maybe these artifacts could actually build one, right? They, they could design a universe and then actually build it. Now, if they can do that, by definition, they're gods, right? right. Yeah. The creator of the universe. <laughs> so, uh, so there's one argument. Uh, another one is uh, human beings. These, these are, I'm giving you now arguments uh, uh, given by the cosmists, you know, the people in in favour of right. building these machines. Uh, and there's a whole string of them. But another one was just the, the human striving argument. You know, why do the human beings climb Mount Everest? Well, because it's there, right? It's the challenge. Right. It's in our genes to be curious and to strive and to to be, to be curious. What's over the next uh, next next hill? That, that kind of thing. So so you can't really stop it. Uh, the, you know, the religious argument, you'd be God-building as, as, an, as an ism. Yeah. Uh, there are certain momentum arguments, like, you know, the momentum, the economic momentum. The, you know, this uh, artificial brain-based industry for home robots and, other, and many other applications would be enormous. Uh, like Bill Gates, uh, he's on record. He's saying by... 2030, he, he thinks the home robot industry will be one of the biggest in the world, worth literally trillions of dollars a year worldwide. So uh, the economic momentum would be enormous. So how on earth could you stop it? Like, like if the Terrans, they're the people who opposed to building artifacts, if they really push hard and say, you know, we want this stopped, uh, they're going to have a hard time because the economic momentum would be enormous, right? right. Governments would be pouring you know, trillions of dollars into it because the one of the, if not the world's biggest industry, because cause there's nothing more intelligent, uh, more powerful than intelligence. Uh, and then you've also got the uh, military momentum. I mean, in the time frame, uh, essentially how everything ties up together. <laughs> In the time frame we're talking about, say just a few decades from now, say 2020s, 2030s, when, when this uh, debate really starts raging and, and the IQ gap starts closing and people buying their uh, updated versions of, of home robots, uh, where, where is the international, you know, the global political situation? Where, where's that going to be? Um, I, I've seen two cultures just my own lifetime and... Uh, Experience. I've seen two cultures go down. Like I, I was living in the 70s in Britain, and uh, the Brits were going through the experience of uh, you know how painful it is to 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 no longer be number one. Like in the Suez, I don't know if you know the history, but in the Suez crisis, when when NASA um, took control of the Suez Canal. And France and Britain were outraged, and they they sent in troops. And America said, nope. Get out. Yeah. We're the top dog now. <laughs> Get out, Britain, France. And so, um, and, and the French as well. The French were extremely arrogant and felt superior to everybody uh, until they got cable television, international cable television in the 90s. 
And then they realized that uh, they'd won far less Nobel Prizes than the Brits, uh, even though a similar population. Their economy was any, nowhere near as healthy as the German economy. Their social legislation was decades behind the Scandinavians, blah, blah, blah. And they realized, be, because they could zap cultures, they could zap languages in their own living rooms because yeah. of international or European cable television. And so the French went through a similar experience. Uh, so I've, I've been through two of them, and it's looking now, uh, given the debt, the huge debt, economic debt America has, what is it, 220-odd trillion dollars or something? Might, to include I, all, I all the, <laughs> yeah, with all the liabilities and you know, Medicaid and all that, that. That's the figure I keep hearing on the Internet. It's about yeah. $220 trillion. And the, the gross national product annual uh, of the U.S. is about $16, $17 trillion. So there's just no way that debt can be paid. So other countries, uh, particularly Japan and China, uh, who have over a trillion dollars in their uh, international reserves, they're, they're waking up to the idea that they're never going to be repaid. So the, the dollars... They realize their dollars are becoming increasingly worthless because the Fed, U.S. Fed, is just printing dollars like crazy. Right. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's quite possible America may actually crash. I mean, uh, the standard of living will drop to about 20% of what it is today. Uh, and, that, you know, that'll be absolutely traumatic. So, uh, you know, a decade or two or three from now, um, the... The positions of China and America possibly may be reversed, and with bitter rivalry between the two. And if China, uh, it's a big if. My, my own personal feeling is China will democratize in about a decade, uh, simply because of the rise of the middle class. There's, Interesting. There's a hundred other countries over the past half century that, that have made the switch. I, I don't. There's a branch of political science. I don't know if you've heard of it called transitology, study of transitions, and it specializes in uh, the question when, why, how do countries switch or transition from one-party di dictatorships to multi-party democracies. When, when does that happen? And, you know, there are huge databases on this. So, so you can go data mining and you can go searching through all this data and, and trying to find some interesting generalizations. And, and one of the main ones, uh, very interesting, is that the switch occurs when the standard of living of that country goes over about six to $8,000 per person per year. Now, interesting, China today is at about $6,000. So it's, it's just on this... Um, economic uh, democratic threshold. So, so I'm predicting China will, because there, there are now about, I don't know, 200, 300 million middle class Chinese, you know, university educated, apartment, car, uh, international trips, you know, that, that kind of thing. Right. M middle class. Yeah. So, so, you know, that'll, that'll rise by another couple of hundred million uh, within a decade. And then, and middle class being middle class, they always push. They want their property protected. They want rule of law. They, they want to have a say in the government. They're fed up with uh, the corruption of dictatorships, blah, blah, blah. And you hear the same thing. You know, a hundred countries have been through this experience. So there's a lot of experience, and probably China will go the same way. Anyway, so, so I'm anticipating an enormous rivalry between the U.S. on the way down and China on the way up, if, if not already up within you know, a, decade, a decade from now. 
And But if China has not democratized within a decade or so, then the antagonism, the, the ideological antagonism of, a, of an America on the way down and China on the way up, but still dictatorial, um, I, I can imagine then, imagine you're the Minister of Defense of, say, China or America. You will not have the luxury to allow the other guy, you know, your rival, to outdo your country in terms of the level of artificial intelligence that you put into your soldier robots and, and you know, AI-based military systems and so on. So there'll be a, a tremendous um, military momentum that you won't you won't be able to stop in the in the time frame we're talking about, just just a couple of decades. Right. So there there are two uh, momentum arguments, and I suppose there's another one, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, momentum argument, and that is the dependence, because as uh, like already today, uh, the computers are controlling our water systems, our traffic yeah. systems, uh, our cell phone routing systems. You know, so uh, we just could not, even today, we could not live without them. I mean, if the internet shut down tomorrow, you know, people would starve. Yeah, absolutely. So, so just, just the sheer dependence. So yeah. for all these reasons, uh, you know, we, we, we can't really stop, stop this. Uh, well, I have a saying about it. It's a paraphrasing of the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... So I paraphrase it a bit, saying that uh, all all roads, in fact, all technological roads, lead to the artelect. Yeah. You know, for example, nanotechnology, uh, neuroscience. You're providing ideas on how the, how how the brain works, and then those principles are discovered and transferred immediately and put into the machine. So, you should, yeah. so you'll have a kind of wedding between neuroscience, you know, the the biology guys, now, and neuroengineering. Now, yeah. Now, before we move on, while we're on this political subject, I would like to present a situation. And that is, um, you know, if, if, if this uh, highly advanced artificial intelligence does come about with, you know, in the near future, you're saying a few decades can be realistic. What kind of role do you see it taking realistically? Let's, let's, let's be realistic. You know, within my lifetime, which is um, you know, with, with today's medical science and the continuing improvement of so, you know, I should live about another, uh, what do you say, 120 years? <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was saying with today's technology, you'll live another 50. Right, sure. Well, I hope... You're, you're 30s, right? Low uh, 30s? quite, almost. But okay. my, my question is, um, these massively intelligent pieces of soft software and hardware. What do you see their role in leadership, political leadership, and how does that mix with, um, you know, like if there's one of these beings somehow involved in leadership in a democracy uh, as opposed to like a, a, a communistic state or a authoritarian state? Well, it depends on the year. I mean, give, give me a decade. Which, which decade are we talking Let, about? Let's call it a, by 2025. 2025. Okay, or so 30. mid-2020s. Mid, mid yeah. Uh, the, the debate will be raging. I, I see it heating up uh, even this decade in the teens. Uh, the IQ gap will be closing. Virtually everybody, in, at least in the rich countries, will be maybe not so much in Africa, 
but in the rich countries, um, they'll have their home robots. The, the industry will be well established. Okay. Uh, they won't be at human uh, twenty 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 five. They will not be at human level then. But okay. the, but the trend will be clear, okay. and it'll be obvious to virtually anybody, any thinking person, that uh, you know it's only a question of time. It's no longer a question of if. In fact, amongst the researchers today, it's no longer a question of if. It's only sure. a question of when. But 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 it'll have gone mainstream. It, it it'll uh, so mid twenties. We're into phase four. Okay. It'll be political. Okay. Let's, let's revise the question a little bit. When, what decade do you see, um, you know, given the acceptance of this massively artificial genre, when do you see robots or whatever you want to call them, Artilex, in leadership actually leading the human race or having some sort of part in governance or politics or anything like that? Is that something you see? Like, would you think the government will employ these things to make good decisions for the human race? Um, and does, you know, uh, how does that fit in with democracy or how does that fit in with um, a place like China as it is today? Mm. Uh, reaching that level, uh, probably 2030s, 2040s. You know, given, given if you extrapolate up the graph of uh, rates of technological progress, I mean, supercomputers have already reached uh, bit rate per second, you know, bits of information per second, uh, equal to the human brain. We've already passed that milestone. And the next will be figuring out how the human brain works. So we need a lot more, uh, many breakthroughs in uh, neuroscience. But, but progress in that field is also exponential. So you know, we'll understand what a memory is and how does the brain make a decision and, and why is one person more intelligent than another or more creative than another. You know, we'll have an answer to these basic questions. So we still need a lot more progress in neuroscience, but, but that's coming. So once the machines start becoming smart enough to, you know, once they reach human intelligence level, there won't be much time before they go way past it. So, right. so people who think um, these machines, oh, well, then, you know, they could help us in government and, and control the economy and be extremely beneficial to humanity, I think they're being a bit naive because these machines, you know, once, once they reach human intelligence level and they have access to world knowledge, and they have hugely more uh, greater memory capacities. And don't forget, they're thinking a million times faster than we are, right? They're machines. Right. They, they, think, they think at electronic speeds, not, not at uh, our human brain chemical speeds, which is a million times slower. We, we, our two, two neurons, two brain cells in our brain communicate at about 100 meters per second, whereas uh, electronic brains, they, you know, they communicate amongst their components at the speed of light. That's a million yeah. times faster. Sure. So yeah. even, even, even a machine of human intelligence level is going to be able to absorb the world's knowledge, you know, in, in I don't know, minutes. Sure. <laughs> and, and so, and, and that's, what, that's what the movie Transcendence is about. That's, that's what this guy does right. in the machine. Now, now, just based on that, because obviously you talked about how the philosophers will start discussing this topic and that's, you know, I, I want your opinion on this. Where do we draw an understanding or where do we ground our foundation for ethics and 
morality when it comes to these artilects? Are they going to, do you think they're going to develop their own set of morals or like, how do you see that? You know, how does, how does that develop? Because what is the ethics of a being that can effectively think, you know, like you said, million times faster than we can. And, and what are they going to have emotions like we do, or are they just, you know, intelligent, just machines running around? Do they have, uh, I mean, I'm assuming that at that point they will have sentience. So, I mean, would that say something about us as humans? Are we, are we just mere machines as well, but just at a lower level? Uh, you know, I'm just trying to get a grasp of, um, you know, those areas that are a little bit more metaphysical uh, in nature, how, how do you see the Artilex, um developing in those areas? Uh, can, can I answer that question with a question? I'm just, I'm just sure. curious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, been living, I've been living eight years in China in a kind of cultural cocoon, sure. so I'm a bit, bit out of touch with uh, you know, fellow English speakers. <laughs> I am very curious. Now, the, the question you've just posed, is, is sort of you know the critical question. Sure. Right? It's 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 the question you know one of that will dominate the species dominance debate. Sure. So I'm very curious to know in your own mind, like you personally, this question is it for you a piece of science fiction basically, or, or are you taking it really seriously? Oh, I, I'm personally I'm taking it seriously because you I would know say most of our listeners do take that. Yeah, seriously. I mean we we are you know as as I said and when I first contacted you we we are a Christian podcast. So we have a particular uh-huh. worldview, you know, that's based on the Bible and stuff like that. But but we're very unusual in that we do no, think well, about we, these we can, uh, these topics. We can talk about deism if you like, because I'm sort of very open to deism. Okay, but that's that's sort of another issue. Sure. Um, well, uh, well, perhaps I, I should now. I mean, I've already given the arguments uh, pro Artelix. Let, let me give the arguments uh, that may indirectly answer your question. Okay. Uh, Against and and uh, mentioned a bit before these these people I've labelled Terrans. Now, if if the cosmists have labelled them, that's based on the word cosmos, you know, the universe, because you know that's one of their major arguments. There's a whole universe out there. So the the bigger picture, you know, the big picture. Sure. We, is we that, live in a universe. Is that similar to the Omega point? Sort of. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we live in a universe that's uh, what 13.8 billion years old. And our pathetic little human lives, we get snuffed out in a mere 80 years, you know, in a universe that's so, so old. So, you know, that's, that's a cosmos argument. But the Terran, the Terran argument, what, you know, what would their top priority be? Well, of course, survival of the human species, right? To, to them, that's unquestioned. That's absolutely number one. So, so when push really comes to shove, when, when the cosmos are, are ser- dead serious about building these artilects and, and when uh, humanity uh, can see that the IQ gap is closing, that's that's when I see the the Terrans um, militarizing. You know, they'll, they'll debate it for for a couple of years or a decade or whatever, and then they'll start uh, the action groups and they'll start going political, and the politicians will start getting in the act, and and then there'll be even political parties based on on this issue because it's just so important. Like 19th century parties were labelled the very labels were, you know, socialist, uh, democratic, democratic, communist, fascist, whatever. Now, th- these are all, 
in a sense, economic solutions, you know, answers to, to this basic question, who should own capital? Whereas 21st century parties I see as being like um, transcendent or cosmic or Terran or you know, the, the very labels of the party because it's the essential issue. It's, it's the dominant issue of, of our era, sure. our historical right. era. And so, um, so the number one um, argument against building artleks I see coming from the Terrans will be uh, human survival. You know, what's at stake here? Well, if these, and here's maybe an answer to your question, if humanity goes ahead and, uh, and the cosmos actually build these artleks, and then these artleks become godlike, you know, they're, they're trillions and trillions of times above the human level, then maybe, and, and that's like a, a key word in this whole species dominance debate, is risk, right? We, we just don't know. That's the problem. They're so much smarter than us. Sure. We have no idea what they'd be thinking, what their priorities are, what their ethics are. That, that's, you know, just unknown. So who's to say that these, these artilects, once they become massively superior to human beings, they may look on us as, as humans as pests, like the way we look on mosquitoes. Like right, if, right. I slap, if I slap some mosquito, uh, it's a miracle of nanotechnology engineering. When you, today, we, we cannot build a mosquito because it, it's too complex. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but we, we zap it anyway because you know, relative to us as human beings, it's nothing. Sure. It's just a pest. We just wipe it out. Or if right. I go walking along the forest path, and every step I'm probably killing bacteria in the zillions, but I don't give a damn. Because I'm human, right? And yeah. they're bacteria. They're so inferior to me. They're just nothing to me. I don't. I don't. You can see. You can see the analogy. You can see where I'm going sure, with this. Yeah. So, so the artlex may, uh, you know, just look on human beings in the same kind of way. Because if if they're thinking a million times faster than we are, then uh, we're just utter morons compared to them. Right. So they may say, all oh, these human beings, they're like a cancer on the planet. They multiply so fast and they're eating up all our resources and they need oxygen and, and you know, oxygen's annoying to our circuitry, so let's get rid of the oxygen and we can kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> we, we can lower our rust problem and get rid of these pesky humans. <laughs> right, wow. Yeah, this, this, this kind of thing. Yeah. So, so um, one of the major arguments of the Terrans will be uh, just, you know, we just don't know what the ethics will be of, of the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, well, of the artleks, the machines yeah. themselves. And so now, uh, now, they, uh, they, they will just not tolerate that. In fact, their major political strategy will be, their, their platform, if you like, will be there's just that the, there's to be zero risk that uh, these artleks uh, wipe out humanity. And the, and the only way to ensure that that risk is zero is that these artleks are never built in the first place. Hmm. So they will form vigilante groups, uh, things will get militarized, any, any uh, artificial intelligence researcher who attempts to go underground and build a, a, uh, an artificial brain, whatever, will be assassinated. Now, there, there, there may be a worldwide uh, ban on the level of artificial intelligence. You know, a, a home robot that's smart enough to be useful but not so smart it's a threat you know, such a robot, extremely useful. So sure. I can imagine, I can imagine the artificial intelligence level that, uh, that, that uh, maybe, a, maybe even a global government within a few decades, that, that's a possibility. I can imagine them legislating, you know, up to a certain level, fine. Beyond that, becomes a crime. And mm. anyone, but, 
So we can imagine the Terran politicians pushing for that. But you know, ask, you, with nanotechnology and, and maybe just a handful of guys, you, you could probably build an artillery in, in your basement, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so the politics I'm anticipating, it, it'll be a kind of, oh, it'll be kind of witch hunt. The, the Terrans will be absolutely paranoid that it's just so easy to, to build these machines, particularly once the knowledge on how to do it is out there. Right. Sure. Now and, you, you, you talk about a third group as well, which is the cyborgs. Yeah. And, and oh, can I ask you, what have you been reading or seeing? I'm just curious. Like, like, like I say, I'm in a cocoon here. Sure. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've, I've been looking at this for a few years. There's a, an author named Tom Horn that, that wrote a book um, called The Forbidden Gates, and, and he, he looks at the, you know, potentials from a religious point of view of uh, mm-hmm. how, how it's going to, this, these technologies and the development, how it's going to change, um, you know, just the way, uh, for example, Christians will have to operate in the world and things like that. Um, so, but I've been, I've been looking at uh, just these topics for a long time, transhumanism, um, you know, just the technological and scientific development. And I uh, made a, a full-length documentary uh, just looking at this topic as well, and, um, and I mean, I, I'll ask you about some of that stuff later as well. But I mean, I mean, yeah. I've been looking at all kinds of stuff. You know, the the IEET website, um, the uh-huh. uh, uh, Emerging Technologies website. Uh, I've been trying to read, you know, uh, certain authors who have, you know, written about these things uh, in the past, and, and you know, even now looking at H plus, and there's. Uh, there's a lot more groups out there talking about it now than before. Um, th- there's a lot of pro-transhumanist people that, you know, they seem to have a lot of faith that, you know, these AIs are going to be totally awesome, you know, and, and it, it's, it sort of reflects on your, and that's why, you know, I wanted to reach out to you because it does reflect on reality of what we're seeing now. Even the, it seems like the seeds of this artilect war are being planted in such a way that, uh, you know, it'll become a bigger debate as, as time goes on. And I think films like Transcendence will, uh, you know, spark the debate even more. But, um, yeah, with the, with the cyborgs, though, I mean, we talk about transhumanism a lot on this show. And, and just this idea of merging with technology, uh, is that going to be a third group? Or are they going to be yeah, caught yeah, in the yeah, middle? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they're, they're the so-called sci- – so you've got the Terrans who are opposed, uh, the Cosmists who are in favor – and you have a third group, the, the so-called cyborgists, and they're the people who want to become cyborgs themselves. They're the people who say, I would love to become an intellect god <laughs> by and, you know, become immortal and travel anywhere in the universe and change my, my structure you know, in a microsecond and infinite memory and thinking a million times faster and uh, get out into the universe and explore and try and find other hyper-advanced civilizations and, and all the rest of it. So, and, and that's very appealing to a lot of people. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, there's a lot of optimism about that, which, which I understand, but I'm somewhat cynical because I feel they're not getting the whole picture. Uh, they're, they're being too optimistic and not sure. giving enough, enough, enough waiting, if you like, to the negative side. For, for example, when, you know, on the internet, when, when I uh, watch uh, the videos of Diamandis, you know, abundance and all that stuff, that, that guy is inspiring, right? I, I feel inspired when I listen. listen to, you know who I'm talking about? I'm the, not familiar. Peter Diamandis, the, the ex-prize guy. Uh, no, Diamond, D-I-A-M-A-N-D. Does he make Diamond. videos? Is that the? Yeah, he makes. Yeah, and he. He's I think come I've out, seen him around. He's come out. He's, I think he's based in California. He's uh, come out with a book called Abundance, 
And anyway, he's saying that with nanotechnology, uh, we can get rid of economic shortage, you know, all that that kind of stuff. Sure. And uh, we, we, the number of wars is going down. The number of pe- the proportion of the population being killed uh, in wars and so forth is is going right down. And people are living longer, and they're a lot healthier and better educated, and and, and you know, all all the positive side. And uh, yeah, that's true. But um, that to me is cherry picking. <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I can put on my uh, pessimist hat and cherry pick in the opposite direction. I, mean, sure. I can say things like, well, the 20th century was the bloodiest in history. Something like two or three hundred million people were killed uh, for political reasons, you know, mostly wars and you know, purges and genocides and holocausts and ethnic cleansings. And it was just, just a horrible century in that sense. And. Uh, you know, if if there's a major war, uh, you know, what I call the intellect war, you know, between the cosmos and the Terrans in the 21st century with 21st century weaponry, right? Yeah. Then uh, the scale, if you, if you draw a graph, uh, you can extrapolate up the graph of the number of people killed in major wars over the last couple of centuries. Then when you extrapolate that graph, you're getting into the billions being killed in a major war, most, the most passionate war that humanity's ever had, because the stake has never been so high. Like 20th century wars, they were essentially between countries. Right? Sure. That was the that was the scale of warfare in the 20th century, but if if we have a major war uh, over the issue of species dominance in in the 21st century, say mid mid to later 21st century, with 21st century weaponry, then uh, the scale of the killing won't be in the millions or hundreds of millions. Like the Second World War killed, I don't know, maybe depends how you define it, but say of the order of a hundred million people. So a major war in the uh, second half of 21st century, that'd be up in the billions. So, so I, I talk about, and, and, and we don't even have 10 billion people, right? We have about, the world population is about 7 billion people. So I talk about giga death, you know, giga meaning a billion. So it's extremely gloomy. So, uh, you know, it's easy to, to, to counter Diamandis' optimism. So uh, I, I think people should be more balanced. So I'm, I'm waiting with great impatience for, for phase three to happen, you know, um, when uh, things go mainstream. And then the social science guys can get in, get on the, the act, you know, historians and, and political scientists and philosophers and uh, that kind of thing. And, and then uh, once it goes mainstream, the movies and the media and television and everything, then people become informed about the issue. And then they can start having their own opinions, you know, informed opinions. And then the opinion poll, you know, the, uh, what's the name, the, can't, can't remember the, the poll, opinion, no. So the, the, the pollsters can go out into the public and start asking, well, are you more Terran or are you cosmist or are you a cyborgist? I need to talk a bit about what the cyborgs, cyborgists want. But um, people will be able to uh, give their opinions on you know, which side of the fence they're on. And that will be very interesting to, to know just what, what um, for example, uh, pe- people, very religious people, are they more likely to be Terran or more likely to be Cosmist or, or Cyborgist? Or, you know, we, we just don't know. And is there a, a gender difference? You know, do men and women feel differently on this? Or is there an age difference, like the older generation, the younger generation? Well, at the moment, we don't know. But my bet is uh, within probably within five years, uh, we will know because the issue will have gone mainstream and then the, 
the yeah Gallup that, that, that was the company I was trying to the think Gallup, of. So yeah. the, the Gallup poll people can go out and uh, you know actually measure what what the reality is instead of at the moment we're just we're just guessing you know, people like me we, we just guess we we don't, we don't really know. Okay, I, I got a bit sidetracked. So the the cyborgists, what do they want? Well. Uh, essentially, they, they want to become artifacts themselves. They, they want to convert themselves from being human beings into artifacts. And they can do this uh, step by step or to, to, to pun bit by bit. <laughs> uh, so, so they add, you know, they add uh, intellectual components to their own brains. But um, my, my argument against them is that, uh, in effect, in, in practice, there really aren't any... Uh, cyborgists or, or cyborgs because uh, you know saying earlier about uh, the the single grain of sand it, it can outperform uh, in, in computational terms the human brain by a factor of a, a quintillion like a million trillion times so you only have to add one little grain of uh, sand you know nanotech sand to your human brain and poof you're no longer human, right? In a sense, you've committed suicide as a human. You, you've been utterly transformed in, into an artifact. Sure, so yeah. so the, the computational capacity of nanotech matter is so great, it's so vast, that in practice, you, you're just not going to have cyborgs. So effectively, you're going to have either humans or artifacts. Now, the, the artifact may take a human form. You may, you may be looking at a human body, but if that human body in its brain just has one little grain of nanotech matter, effectively it's, it's an artifact. Hmm. So, so I see the Terrans becoming absolutely paranoid. They won't be able to distinguish between a pure human and, and an artifact human because right. in physical form they'll both have the same kind of body and they, they won't be able to, to, to you know, make, make, make a difference, see, detect the difference. So, so I see the artifact, uh, sorry, the Karen um, guys just, just going bananas. So they'll, they'll just become absolutely paranoid. They'll suspect everybody. And so uh, I see the, you know, the debate heating up and up and up until, uh, you know, we have this horrible war. And, well, I think, what do you think about this? The difference between the cyborgs and the artilects, you know, if a human being receives this uh, grain of sand that essentially turns them into an artilect, they're still sort of contained within a human body. Now, if the artilect is contained within a human functioning biological unit, um, that could take away a little bit of the function to get rid of all of the oxygen in the atmosphere or making the earth an unlivable place. Uh, in that sense, it seems like the Artelect cyborgs would have, you know, a little bit more concern with the lives of, uh, call them homegrown humans, um, or just the ability to sustain biological matter. Well, maybe. See, that. It, it's it's the vagueness of it all. It's the uncertainty of it all. Uh, imagine yourself a Terran politician. <laughs> like the internet speed doubles every year. Uh, televisions now get almost like in the U.S. Now, what what are the biggest walls uh, television wall screens? How big are they now? Are they like sixty or are they eighty inches? How big are they? They're almost the wall size, right? You're talking about for commercial use. 
Yeah, 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 commercial use. Yeah, I mean... No, 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 sorry, no, home use, home use, domestic. Right, right. How, how big are they? 60 inch or 80 inch? 100 inch? You know, how depends, big have they got? depends on your uh, economic level, but I think uh, the largest that I've seen, you know, is around 60 inches, just in a 60, no, yeah, yeah, normal, I see, I see those, normal person household. Okay, yeah, I've seen 62 inch in uh, the Chinese stores uh, for the <laughs> upper, upper, upper middle class. Right. <laughs> okay, so, um, so imagine that goes to, you know, you know, within a few years, it's it's not far away. You'll have uh, wall screens, you know, the, the whole walls, and in vivid, vivid uh, three-dimensional imagery, because uh, the internet speed is doubling every year. So in 30 years, that's uh, what is that? That's it's a lot of doubling. <laughs> in 10 years, it's a thousand times. So that's, that's a trillion, right? Is that right? Massive, no, it's a billion. It's a billion, a billion times faster. And yeah. in 40 years, that's a trillion times faster. So all those bits, you, you can imagine uh, the, the quality of the three-dimensional image that you'll be seeing in your own living room will be, uh, I, I, I say, as real as real. Hmm. Right? You, you, can't, you can't, like when 8K, have you, have you heard it? Like um, the... The machines coming out now. The TV's coming out at 4K. You know, it's right, a right, resolution. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't you don't need to go beyond 8K because the human eye cannot distinguish. You know, there's a limit to the resolution of the human eye. Sure. So, so once you reach 8K, that's it. You don't you don't need to go any further. It's just a waste of effort because the human eye can't detect the difference. If you go to 16K, for example. So anyway, um, all this fabulous uh, three-dimensional imagery. Uh, so people will be able to travel the world in their living rooms. You know, they, they can go all over the planet. So the level of consciousness of living in a, in a global community will increase, like, like nationalism I see dying, and, and globalism will become you know, much more popular and, and just you know, everyone will think in those terms, and, and that will put real pressure for the growth well, we've already decided. So we, the world has already decided that English is the world language because it's mm-hmm. far and away the most spoken uh, second language. Like you know, all those Indians and Chinese who, who you know, avidly learning English because because of its technological uh, benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a, a global language uh, increasingly, and that means ideas transmit uh, far faster, uh, and and so then the whole planet. Uh, is, uh, will have access to the world's best ideas, and so only the best will survive. And so eventually you, you get a kind of cultural homogenization. I, I see, that, see that coming with uh, most people speaking two languages, their, their local national language and the world language. Right. And, and, and people will become more and more globans, if you like. They'll be hmm. more global in their mentality. So, so who knows? Maybe a couple of decades from now, there will be globan, that's the adjective, globan politicians. Right? Sure. Now, I have a question about that because do you think that, obviously, you see social networking as continuing to develop into, you know, the, the interaction between people just, uh, you know, across the globe changing. Uh, we, you know, we just heard about Facebook purchasing Oculus Rift, which is a virtual reality, you know, mask type thing. And, and so, so do you see these, you know, uh, when you say political parties and we talked about the different factions, is that, do you think that'll be more of a, 
a corporatized, uh, you know, non-local sort of uh, movement, or do you think they'll still? Because you were talking about how the nation-state idea will, you know, be eradicated. Uh, how do you, how do they collectively uh, meet? You know, do they just meet on the cloud? You know, from their from their home, or do you think there'll be communities uh, based on these uh, these different ideas and groups? We, we, I mean, once once the, the like for example, I'll watch. You know, I watch a lot you know, because I'm retired. You know, quite a bit of time. I, I watch lots of uh, YouTube videos. And I noticed that already that uh, about two-thirds or so of the comments left you know, on a particular video, you, you can just tell these, these people making these comments, uh, English is not their native language. Yeah. But, but, but they're, writing, they're writing in English. They're commenting in English because America, you know, it's America's soft power is just enormous, right? So like, uh, I was asking my Chinese wife just a week ago, uh, and, or her, her son, my son-in-law, uh, does China have something equivalent to, to YouTube where, where ideas and uh, university courses and all this stuff is, is just freely available, available for everyone? And uh, my son-in-law, you know, he's a bright guy. He's, he's got a master's. He's smart. And he's saying, not really. China, China doesn't really do that. <laughs> and, and so America is offer, offering this wonderful resource, right? educational, uh, intellectual, you know, stimulating resource for the whole planet. And so, of course, you know, all the smart guys all around the world are, are getting into it. And, and they can't get into it unless their English is fluent, right? Mm-hmm. Because all these right. lectures, and it's, it's all in fluent English. So they're motivated like hell to get really fluent. And, and they are. And they're commenting. So you know, see that just you know, uh, running to to saturation, you know, just pretty well. Um, in fact, I invented a term: uh, somebody who cannot do that, who's who's not a member of of the global um, uh, English-speaking world language culture. I, I, I label them igloberates. I double G. It's sort of like illiterate or enumerate. You know, can't do math or is cyanate. You know, doesn't know science. You know, scientifically <laughs> ignorant. So an igloberate is somebody who's not tapped into to global culture and hence uh, severely handicapped. And so they would be less likely to get a job because you know, their, their their mentality is too provincial. They 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 couldn't communicate with the world literally. So um, so so see that occurring. Now, will it occur? Uh, well, I lived in Europe a long time. I, I see the the EU, the European Union, as a kind of model. Uh, now, the, the size of political units over many centuries has has been increasing in you know, in time, and uh, pretty much state of the art now is no, is no longer the nation; it's the union, like the European Union, the African Union, and recently the South American Union. Uh, the Japanese are pushing very hard for an Asian union. Uh, and, and so, uh, a decade or so back, there, there were two, two unions in South America. But they, so those blocks, economic blocks, they blocked as a verb <laughs> into the South American union. And Merkel, you know, the, the chancellor of Germany, she's been pushing uh, Washington pretty hard to form the... Atlantic Union, and you can mm-hmm. probably guess what that is. It's a, a, an economic union between uh, NAFTA, you know, North, is it North American Free Trade Area? So right. Can, Canada, America, Mexico, and, and maybe even um, uh, all of all of the American countries. You know, Central America and South America, all thirty odd, whatever it is, 
or more uh, nations form, and then team up with the European Union. And the, the point of doing that is, uh, you know, in later decades, to, to compete in just sheer population terms, you know, over a billion, uh, with the already billion uh, giants of China and India. And, and so America may be just forced into it, you know, to, to have uh, enough uh, economic clout at, at the global negotiation table when all these you know, trade deals are, are made and so forth. And so uh, you can imagine uh, step by step, uh, as these blocks block themselves, so then you get this uh, Atlantic Union, and then, and then uh, um, when the Asian Union uh, gets formed, and then then who knows? Maybe the African Union may block with the European. Yeah, until eventually, um, the final step would be, of course, the the size of your economic block, you know, BLOC, is that right? BLOC, yeah, is the size of the planet, and then you then you've got a you've got a global government, hopefully. Uh, fully democratic. That's that's my ideal. Uh, yeah. And now, how does how does the uh, the aspect of Artilex work its way into that? I mean, is it okay? Is there going to be a a push for the Artilex to sort of organize such a large union, or how does that tie in? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. Take so, uh, these two two broad topics. You know, the the rise of the Artilex. That was that was my first book. And then the rise of the global state, I just call it GLOBA, uh, is the theme of my second book. So how, how do the two tie in? Well, let, let's say there is a fully democratic global state created in the next few decades, and, and I see that as you know, quite, quite a possibility. Uh, and, and fully democratic, so uh, with free education. I'm a GLOBA cater, remember, talking at the, the beginning? So imagine free education. So uh, we we can get rid of the world's ignorance, and uh, with everyone fully educated to the limit of their abilities, so we can get rid of poverty. And in a fully democratic uh, global state, uh, we can get rid of wars and get rid of the arms trade. Uh, you, do you know America is the greatest arms trader in the world? Yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah, you know merchants of death. So, so we you know we have to get rid of the nation state in a sense if if we want to get rid of wars because uh, and, and the arms trade because uh, say America gets an attack of conscience conscience and says oh we're going to stop the arms trade well then some other guy would just take it over right and it's hundreds of billions of dollars a year so it's it's hugely profitable so if America doesn't do it well then China will do it and China doesn't do it well Europe will do it and they don't well the Russians will do it so. So hopefully if we can get a fully democratic global government, we can get rid of the arms trade. And then suddenly, you know, trillion or more dollars a year, more trillions, uh, get freed up for humanitarian projects. So, right. so it, uh, you know, with global, as a global state, if it's, if it's done properly, you know, fully democratic, not, not dictatorship, not fascism. Uh, what's his name? Alex Jones? Is, is he a big deal in the U.S. now? Yeah. yeah. Alex Jones? He he keeps talking about the globalists. You know, I, I use the word globist, just two syllables. And he uses what four? Is it global? No, three. Globalists. <laughs> for, for him, the globalists are the enemy. Whereas, uh, but he assumes that, that you know they'll be fascists. They're like the the central banksters and uh, the new world order and and all that stuff. Right. And and and, and you know, who knows? It may work out that way. That's a possibility. 
But uh, my conception of a world state is very different. It's uh, okay. get get rid of the central banksters. Stop stop them thieving, uh, stealing about half of our tax dollars every year. Hmm. Uh, those those guys should be sent to the Hague, you know, the, the International Criminal Court. Yeah. And, and, and shot, frankly. I mean, I have a yeah. hatred of what, what, what those guys have done. Yeah. Oh, they've been doing it for a century. And not just in America, just almost, well, all the Western countries. Right. I still, sure. have, still have a bit of a question mark, just uh, what, what role they play in Russia and China. But I know those two are combining to uh, counter, counter the central government dictatorship in, in, in America. So would the, would the Artelecs help to get rid of that? I'm, I'm still trying to get to the Artelect... Uh, yeah, they're still influence. getting... Still, yeah, still getting into how do these two connect. So I, I see. Let, let's assume that the um, this global, this uh, fully democratic global state uh, does get formed. Imagine, and imagine you're one of these global politicians. So uh, now, if you if it's a global state, you you have power over the whole planet by definition. So you can imagine then uh, creating a an an AI or an artificial intelligence uh, threshold level. In other words, by, by global legislation, uh, the machines are allowed to reach a, a well, up to, but not, not, not above, a, a certain uh, threshold level. That, that, and beyond that, higher than that, uh, anyone uh, producing such a machine becomes a criminal and, and would be prosecuted. Now, I, I see the cosmists will just go underground. If that happens, they'll just go underground. For, for them, creating uh, the the artifact is a kind of religion. Like right. you, you, you could see cosmism then sort of changing connotations. And instead of it being an ideology, it would it would become more a religion because they'd be building gods. They they would be building creatures that would be immortal that that could maybe you know design and construct universes. It's it's too important. So they they would look on the Terrans as absolutely. Blah, you know, <laughs> petty-minded, provincial in the extreme. Uh, they, they, would, they would look on Terrans as exterminable uh, b- because um, the the big dream of the cosmos is to build gods. Now, of course, if you're a Terran, you, you'll argue the other way. You'll look on the, the cosmos as uh, being willing to take the risk that humanity as a species gets wiped out as a result of right. uh, these artifacts coming into being. So the Terrans will argue, hey, you cosmos, you are monsters. You're immoral monsters. You're prepared to take the risk that humanity gets wiped out. Well, that's me as a Terran, you know. <laughs> Right. Imagine you're a Terran. So, so the, I can imagine the passion level of these these two groups, with with uh, the, you know the third group, the the. Um, I, I just see the Terrans lumping together, the cosmets, you know, the people who want to build the Artlex, and the cyborgists, because there's not much difference be, between um, a cyborg. You know, given the huge capacity of uh, right. nanotech matter, there's not much difference between a cyborg and a pure machine, you know, a pure intellect. So I see the Terrans just, they just lump the two into the same camp. So effectively, you've got uh, the cosmos cyborgists on one side, and you've got the Terrans on the other, and each with passionate arguments uh, on, on either side. And uh, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> there, there are scenarios where bitter conflict is avoided, but I don't see those scenarios. I could tell you one if you're interested. Just, just uh, 
but I, I don't see these these uh, scenarios where humanity escapes, where, where where there's not a major bitter giga death conflict. Right. I, I don't see them as so realistic. I'll give you one, just just while we're on it in passing. So here's a scenario where humanity does escape. <clears throat> so imagine, have you heard of the concept uh, slow takeoff and fast takeoff? Do you know what that means? Yeah, I've, I've come across it in some of the research, but um, probably, in probably yeah, okay, can't articulate that. it, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, I'll, I'll explain quickly. So a slow takeoff is that... Um, the amount of time it takes for for these uh, low level artilics you know, not not so brilliant artilics to become uh, you know godlike artilics Ma- imagine that's quite a few years or even decades that's that's a slow takeoff now a fast takeoff is uh, they may reach human level uh, and then you know quickly like in days or weeks uh, they then redesign themselves like if they're human intelligence of human level intelligence, and they can think a million times faster than we can. Well, they could probably redesign themselves, right, in, into more efficient forms and smarter forms. And so they ratchet themselves up very quickly into super intelligence and hyper intelligence uh, in in the matter of I don't know hours, days, weeks. That so that that's rapid or fast takeoff. So imagine. Yeah, this is, this is the scenario where humanity does escape. So imagine there is a fast takeoff. So these artleks, they, they come into being, and humanity has not had enough time to react to, to their presence politically. So there's, there, there are no uh, Terran armies or any, anything like that. So the, it's just fait accompli. These, these artleks exist. They're just there, right? And, and humanity just has to confront the reality that they're there. But and and next step, imagine these these artifacts start thinking, well, you know, what on earth are we doing on this planet? <laughs> yeah, there's a whole universe out there. What are we doing here? So they they simply desi- decide to leave, and they go in search of I don't know whatever whatever artifacts do. Maybe trying to find uh, even more advanced uh, hyper civilizations out 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 there in the cosmos. So they just they just leave and and humanity escapes. They don't get wiped out by by the athletes because they're gone. Yeah, yeah the athletes are just gone. You know, it's so, interesting. Yeah. Be- before you move on, it's interesting because uh, uh, there is a group called the Mormon Transhumanists Association. I've and, heard of them. Yeah, yeah, and and they they are pro transhumanist and pro you know sort of what you're talking about. Probably yeah. more on the cosmist side, uh, simply because it it uh, it lines up with their eschatology of uh, you know taking over planets as, you know, uh, becoming a god after death and stuff like that. So uh, I think that's interesting, but go on. Yeah, I've heard that. And, and it is, you know, it's, it, the, the two do seem consistent because um, from the cosmos viewpoint, uh, they're, they're building gods. And, it, you know, it would be a kind of very powerful religion. Because imagine, imagine if you're a cosmist and you look into your crystal ball and you see that in the future, maybe distant future, that humanity has decided to stay at the human level. In a sense, that would be a kind of cosmic tragedy from, from the point of view of the cosmos because the, the potential of, uh, of these artleks is just fabulous, right? It, it, it will be very, very powerful motivator to, to move on. Uh, uh, interestingly, I, I, when I give talks, you know, I don't do it much now because I'm in China, but um, you know, 
uh, when I was a prof, I used to give a lot of talks to Chinese university students and so on. I used to ask them to vote. I say, okay, you know, I've spoken for an hour, and you you understand the the issues pretty well now, and you know there are at least like two sides, uh, Cosmist and Terran. I'm going to ask you to vote. Uh, which 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 way do you think humanity should go? Do you think humanity should build Artelix, or do you think humanity should not build Artelix? So keep keep the question fairly simple, so it's black and white for them. Okay. And uh, for years, uh, in America as well, and Europe, you know, because I've been doing this for a long time, uh, typically the answer was more or less 50-50, 60-40, 40-60, that, that, that was the way. But the last couple of years, now that these issues are getting out into the, the public arena more and more, I'm noticing a, a shift. Uh, now, maybe it's... <laughs> I'm... The audience I'm talking to are biased because uh, you know, as a prof in uh, computer science, that, that was my field, so I was giving a lot of talk to <laughs> computer scientists who, who were quite well informed of these issues, and they were getting up in uh, around the 80% uh, pro Artelect, uh, 80% cosmist, which I thought was interesting. Wow. But, but, but they're probably, you know, they may be biased. So that's, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to, you know, saying a bit before, on, uh, to, to see phase three, you know, the mainstream, when phase three comes in, and then uh, we can get real data, you know, sociological data on, on who thinks what, what, what kinds of classes of people, are they, are they cosmos, are they Terran, are they cyborgist, or, or, or what? And then, uh, then the debate will be much better informed than, than, than it is now. We're just, we're just guessing. We're stabbing in the dark. We don't, we don't really know what, what, what the public thinks, you know, what the correlations are between you know, gender and uh, age and religiosity and so on um, on, on, this, on this huge question. <laughs> sure. You know, there's a as you sort of mentioned earlier and, and we touched on it earlier as well, but you know, being a Christian based podcast, you know, we, we have a particular view about, and especially on this show where, you know, you, you had said earlier that, Oh, people think we're crazy, but uh, you know, the circles we run in people consider us pretty crazy too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, we, we look at certain passages in the Bible and more recently things have come to light, but there's some fascinating verses that I, I would just like to read for you and just to see if, uh, if it does anything for you, because um, I'm sure you've heard about people talk about the mark of the beast and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the, the various predictions. Sure, yeah. And, yeah some, some are quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there's, there's one about the image of the beast. And mm-hmm. there, there's, a, there's a part of it that says uh, in, in Revelation 13, of course, the book of Revelation, you know, the, the yeah, crazy yeah, book. The for these, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it says that, um, you know, it says, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who do not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And, uh, you know, of course, it goes into the famous passage of uh, it also causes both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave to be marked on the right hand or forehead so that no one can buy, sell, unless he has the mark and, you know, all this stuff. Now, what does that do for you as far as, because, I mean, I listened to you talk about this whole war and all of this, and we read this passage that was written, you know, 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and, uh, well, I, I can answer that question. Okay. You've, you've now highly motivated me to go and read the book of Revelation. Okay, good. <laughs> 
interesting. Yeah. I'd heard about it, but I hadn't, I hadn't you know, read it fully. But, um, my God, you've got my curiosity around now. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. amazing. I it's mean, amazing. It, it, exactly. And it really does sound like you know, a, a, the image of the beast that would speak, you know, and so that sounds kind of like an artificial intelligence kind of thing where... Uh, who, uh, excuse my ignorance, but sure. who wrote... Uh, who wrote the book of Revelation? Um, it was. It is uh, thought to be written by John the Revelator back in uh, uh, okay. about 95 AD is the majority consensus among scholars of when okay. it was written. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, there's other passages in like the book of Daniel that talk about, you know, humanity being... Uh, analogous to clay and it says that the, uh, you know, <laughs> interestingly they and they don't mention who they are they will mingle themselves uh with uh hum- humans as iron will mix with clay right. but they will not adhere to each other you know so uh again kind of alluding to this idea of of uh hum- humanity might uh you know, start doing stuff to themselves that, uh, you know, may not be good. And yeah, it, it all, it, it all, it's, it's amazing. Sure. I, and I, I, I sort of sense your interest as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you want to, I mean, sort of um, alluded to it a little bit in the past, do, do, you, do you want to get onto the, the theme of uh, uh, deism? And, and yeah, sure. I would actually yeah. like to hear your thoughts on that and how that, um, you know, contributes to your worldview as it comes to technology and then what we've been talking about. Okay. And globalism um, and everything. All right. So uh, I'm... I, I couldn't really call myself a theist, uh, given the evidence, uh, but deism, um, perhaps I should uh, give some definitions, because people have, you give different definitions to those terms. Um, de- deism is the belief of a creator, you know, some super architect that designed the world, the universe, you know, some, some hyper-physicist, if you like, who designed the laws of physics. Sure. So th- that, that's deism. Theism is, uh, well, as, as I see it, is uh, deism plus uh, this, this creator is uh, a, a kind of personal creator uh, and a loving creator. Now, given that last century, um, what's the word? Can't uh, remember the technical word, but uh, the the argument of evil. Right? How, how do you account for a loving God if there's so much evil in the world? Sure. So that that I find fairly fairly convincing because you know, last century, two three hundred million people uh, died in the Second World War, and presumably tens of millions of them believed in in a loving God, but they died anyway. So you know, I'm I'm a bit bit cynical that way. But deism I'm much more open to, and, and I say that simply be, because of my, not despite, but because of my science. So I, I see the, the, snake, the snake is sort of curling around and starting to eat its tail. I, I, I see science now uh, sufficiently developed that it's um, touching more and more on, uh, well, in, in, com- in very common, you know, religious type question. Right. Uh, sure. and, and I, I have like three three main arguments in, in along those lines uh, that, that persuade me at least. Oh, I'll, I'll just label them first, and perhaps talk a bit a bit about them later. But just give them labels, you know, in, like in bullet form, you know, one, two, three. So uh, the anthropic principle, you've heard of that? Yes. You know, yeah. You know what that's about? Okay. Second one, I, I didn't really have a label for it. Why don't, you, why don't you um, state just a, a brief definition for, for the listeners okay. who may not be familiar? 
All right. Um, okay, the anthropic principle, you know, anthropo um, of of man, mankind. But um, the well, it's debatable. But let's say that the two main forms of the anthropic principle: the the weak form, and the strong form. Uh, the strong form is much more interesting than the weak form. The weak form simply says that uh, the universe has to exist in a way that. Uh, that it can be observed by observers. Right. Because if it weren't, we, you know, human beings, we would not be here to observe the universe. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So, so you know, every, virtually everyone agrees with that. So it's almost like a, um, a truism. You know, <laughs> that, that's, you know, there's hardly anyone who disagrees with that. Sure. That's the weak form. Now, the strong form is much more interesting. And I, I find it, personally, I find it extremely persuasive just, just because of the numbers. They're just so fantastic. The strong form says that um, the, the values of the constants used in the laws of physics are so fantastically, improbably, finely tuned to allow the existence of uh, matter and life that the deep suspicion is that the whole thing has been engineered. It's been designed. Right. It's been rigged by, you know, obviously by a designer, by, by, by a deity. Right? Now, uh, let me give you some of the numbers because they're just, they're just amazing. Um, some, the, the values of some, for example, the charge and the electron, the gravitational constant, right. uh, speed of light, blah, blah, blah. There's, there are lots of things. Now, some of them you can vary by, I don't know, 1%, 10%. And it doesn't make a lot of difference. Like, um, like one of the to make an analogy, one of the reasons why the AK-47 was so popular is that you could get dirt in it. It, it was just so incredibly reliable. It would work no matter what you did with it, right? right. It had such a wide parameter range of uh, operating conditions that it would always work. Well, some parameters in laws of physics are like that. You, 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 can, you can change the values over a wide range. And, and you still uh, get pretty much the same kind of universe that we exist. But at the other extreme, there are some parameters in the you know, values of the constants in the laws of physics that have to be accurate to one part in something like, I think the most extreme case I ever saw was one, it has to be accurate to one part in 10 to the power 120. Yeah. Just wow. yeah, just, that's such that's such a huge number. There's just no way you could you could get a universe to to be that accurate, you know, spot on to that level of accuracy by chance. You know, sure. If you're tossing die to to create a zillion different universes with a zillion different uh, parameter values in the in the laws of physics, you know, it, the, the chance is just so fantastically against it that uh, you become deeply suspicious. The whole thing's been designed. Sure. It, it, it's sort of uh, like the teleological argument as well. I think it's yeah, 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 pretty yeah, close. Yeah, indeed. Sure, yeah. sure. So, so I, I call, you know, it doesn't, I, I, I just call, oh, sorry, that's the first one. That's yeah. the anthropic <laughs> principle. Okay, the second one. Now, there, there's no, as far as I know, there's no label for it, so I just had to invent one. So I just call it the mathematical principle. And what I mean by that is, uh, it, it comes out of the question, why on earth is the universe so mathematical? Right. I mean, why is that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Where'd that come from? <laughs> like, for example, um, to go back a century or so, uh, there was a, a Russian chemist. 
and he was fiddling around with uh, what he knew about all the different uh, elements, you know, like hydrogen and helium and and so on. And he he put he put he put he, he, he had the descriptions of each element on one little card, like a playing card. And he's trying to find patterns in the properties of all these different elements. And after a while, if he ranked them by weight, you know, because uh, you have very light atoms like um, hydrogen, helium, you know, they're, they're very light, and you have very heavy elements like uh, you know, uranium and so on. That's the heaviest one. So it, he ranked all the known elements that, that he knew at the time, I don't know, 50, 60 of them, whatever. Uh, and the early ones were... Um, he noticed a pattern, like like every eighth eighth one had similar properties, like they were all metals, or they were all gases, or, or whatever, or they, they they would all conduct electricity. Or, uh, so so he he created this table that had this periodicity, like every eighth one seemed seemed to uh, belong in the same family. So he created this periodic table, yeah, because hmm. of because of the periodicity. Right. Now now uh, jump ahead a century. And you've got so many so-called elementary particles that uh, you know, the, the same process happens all over again. And this time, uh, it's not Mendeleev, the Russian. It's an American guy um, called Gelman, Murray Gelman, a, mm-hmm. a particle physicist. And he classifies the elementary particles, but uh, not in terms of their well, indirectly, not in terms of their weight or whether they're metals or whatever, but, but um, more abstract um, properties that elementary particles have, like, like their charge, uh, mass, and spin, and, and whatnot. And uh, he, he's, like, 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 um, he, he chooses two properties. I, I won't say whether it gets a bit technical, but he chooses two, two properties that the, all these particles have. And he starts... Uh, and, It'll take one particle and he put it in, um, like imagine these two properties, they're numbers, they're different valued numbers. So imagine an axis, like an x-axis and a y-axis, right? The horizontal axis and the vertical axis. And he takes one element and he looks at the values of these two numbers, these two properties, and he puts, he puts that particle at the coordinates, you know, the x-y coordinates. And then he takes an x2, and he notices uh, their, their coordinates leaves like, now we've got three particles position, and, and they, they're in a triangle. He's got a triangle. And then he takes the next three, and my God, he gets the triangle again. But now with six, six points in the triangle. <clears throat> and then uh, the next four, and, and they, they too are in a triangle. <laughs> so you've got... <laughs> At the top level, you've got one. The second level, you've got two. And the third level, you've got three. And the fourth level, you've got four. So this this mathematical pattern, which comes out of a, an obscure branch of uh, graduate-level pure mathematics um, called Lie algebras. Now, don't, 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 don't worry about the details. Just the, the main point is, why on earth can you classify the elementary particles that, that are used to make up Everything, you know, all, all the atoms, you, you, you assemble all the different um, elements from these elementary particles. They're, they're, they're like the building blocks of matter. Why on earth should they be classifiable using this obscure branch of mathematics right. called, called, called Lie algebras? Where the hell did that come from? So, so uh, this mathematics... And, well, I'll give you one, one other example. It's even, even more modern, because that was in the 60s, 1960s. And now in the 1990s, 
have you heard of something called string theory? Yep. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, have you heard of something called group theory? What, yep. what, what, what's your background, by the way? What are you two studying? We are amateur uh, science enthusiasts, uh, among other things. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, studied, I studied sociology in college. All right. Now, your, your audience, uh, the, your listeners, uh, what's their background, more or less? You know, the, the show, we, have, we are very um, interested in all these sorts of things. I mean, a, a lot of what we've talked about today, we've actually done um, other episodes on that, that are supplementary to this. Um, but along the lines of string theory and, and group theory and, and, you know, chaos theory and all those things, we, we haven't exactly... Uh, um, done pieces on yet uh, my suspicion is that uh, if they're listening to this show a lot of them are familiar with at least the, the very elementary um, uh, principles and, in, yeah. principles and information about the the, the thing so okay, we, okay, you talk okay. about talk it in a, in basic terms most of us will be able to follow with you all right so so when I was talking about that triangle at that level would that be about right that is just about where I'm able to follow you. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll, well, this next one, I'll, I'll keep it at that level. Okay. All right. Now, uh, in string theory, what's string theory all about? That's trying to wed uh, the two major physics revolutions of the 20th century. There was Einstein's general relativity, you know, theory of gravity on the one hand, and quantum mechanics on the other. And uh, I don't know, 70s, 80s, uh, string, so-called string theory uh, came around. And uh, to, to, to make it work, uh, the, the theory showed that uh, the number of dimensions, you know, spatial dimensions that the theory had to exist in was either 26 or 10. Right. Now, that's, now, that's string theory. That's on one side. Now, on the other side, there's something in group theory. They're all different kind. You know, what's a group? It's a special kind of set with certain properties. What's a set? Oh, just just a collection of things. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I have a bit of trouble here. Okay, so uh, group theory. It's a, it's a um, branch of pure mathematics. It's uh, a very beautiful and has wonderful structure, uh, and uh, gets applied in physics a lot. Um, because uh, group, group, you know, this Lie algebra stuff, that, that was group theory that got used to classify the elementary particles. But in the 90s, uh, something even more spectacular happened. Now, uh, there's, there's a type of group uh, called a simple group. Now, it's not simple in the sense it's easy to understand. In fact, it, you know, it's graduate level. Uh, in my role as a globicator, you know, I'll, I will be teaching this stuff and in my YouTube uh, lecture videos in the fairly near future. Now, there's something called a simple group. Now, it's not simple to understand, but it's simple in the sense that you can't break it down into into components anymore. It's sort of like analogous to, say, a prime number. Like you can take any integer, and there's a famous theorem that says that you can break it down into a product of prime prime numbers, like um, 35. That's seven times five. And those two numbers are primes. Uh, so, so a, a, a simple group is is a is a, a type of group that you cannot break down. You can't disassemble it. 
right. into into small, simpler forms. It's 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 uh, as basic as it can get. It's called a simple group. And one of the greatest uh, achievements in pure math and and for humanity as a whole, uh, but most people don't recognize because it's sort of, you know, it's pure math. <laughs> most people don't care. But anyway, in the 80s, uh, one, one of humanity's greatest achievements was to classify, in other words, list all possible simple groups, and, you know, starting from uh, you know, quite small ones and, and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And until they got to one that was so big, it had something like 10 to power 53 members in the group. Now, group's just a set, right? a set of things, a set of elements. And this, this, this group was so large, it had 10 to power 53. And, and so uh, this, this particular group got labelled, not surprisingly, the monster group. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just so huge. And and for for decades it was just a um, how can you say it was a kind of an anomaly, right? It was it was an amusing piece of uh, ab- abstruse, obscure, uh, pure mathematics that the that the mathematicians uh, loved playing around with it because uh, you know, it's a beautiful piece of math. But but that's all it, all it was. And then along comes this uh, Cambridge University genius mathematician and shows that there's a link between this monster group and 26-dimensional string theory. Mm. Yeah. In other words, the mathematics of this, this particular kind of string theory was the monster group. Yeah, mm, interesting. And so, so I'm thinking, my God, you know, the, the, the creator, the, the God, <laughs> is a superb mathematician. Right. <laughs> he, he, it, whatever, is using the largest possible simple group to construct the universe, the, you know, the, the string theory, which describes the whole universe. <laughs> wow. so, you know, and, and that's just two examples. There's, there's a string of others. There's, so more and more, uh, the, the mathematician physicist in me, because you know, that's, that's what I teach, uh, is becoming increasingly convinced, uh, just, just from my knowledge of science and knowledge of math, that the universe is, has been designed by right. a superb mathematician. So this, this, this godlike mathematician. And it, this, this conviction is getting stronger and stronger. Now, now I can't be sure, of course. So, so people describe me as a, an agnostic. And I, I guess that's probably the best, most accurate label. Uh, I, I don't think I'm a theist, but I'm certainly open to, uh, to deism. Okay, so that's the second argument. So we've done the anthropic principle, the mathematical principle, and now there's this third one. And... and uh, now a lot a lot of people have said that you know God is a mathematician that you know that's been around for centuries sure. so that's not not exactly original but this third one I, I think I can claim uh, from from me uh, one one of my research interests is looking into the possibility that there might be uh, into the future a uh, femtotech now you've you've heard of uh, nanotech. Uh, the, the time we're living in now, we're moving down, you know, down in scale, from microtech, you know, like microwave ovens, and you know, from microtech, a millionth of a meter, to nanotech. That's that's a billionth of a meter. So right. A billionth of a meter. That's the scale of molecules, right? So nanotech or nanometer technology, nanometer scale technology. That's uh, little machines the size of molecules. 
right? right. Like, like little machines, like little robots that can pick up one atom from here and put it there. At this point, we actually lost the connection to uh, Dr. Hugo de Garris. However, we, uh, we were able to jump back on, and part of the recording software didn't catch some of the stuff that he was talking about there. Uh, but we'll pick it up where uh, we came back in. Basically, the only thing you missed in between was he was talking about nanotech, which is a billionth of a meter. Then he went and talked about picotech, which is a trillionth of a meter. And, uh, and then he moved into talking about femtotech, which is a quadrillionth of a meter. So that's where we will pick it up at femtotech. Okay, so uh, let's see, where was I? So um, femtotech could outperform nanotech by a factor of a trillion trillion. Right. And then the, the, this way, the way I dreamt up of how to compute uh, using quarks and gluons, I did the same kind of thing. I mean, the, the ideas were basically the same, but, but using these weak force particles, uh, Ws and Zs and so on. And uh, they, they exist, uh, their range is like a thousand times smaller than femto. And, and that level is called Atto, A-T-T-O, Atto, Atto-Tech. So, so I dreamt up an Atto-Tech for computing, an Atto-Computing. And, and uh, so you can work out if, if there were an Atto-Tech, like an Atto-Engineering as well. Sure. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't even started thinking about that yet. <laughs> but uh, so, so I think, hmm, let's see. So it's a, the density would be a 1,000 by a 1,000 by a 1,000. So there's a million times... And then uh, everything would be a thousand times close together, so the signaling speed would be a thousand times more. So, so Atotech could outperform Femtotech by a thousand cu- uh, to the fourth power, a thousand. So, what's that? A million, million. That's a trillion. Wow. Now, now the next one after that is Zepto. Z e p t o. Zepto. Now, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know anything in physics at that scale, so I just sort of gave up. But it was interesting. There was a trend. There was a definite trend, right? You, you, you're going from scale to scale, level to level. And uh, so then I asked myself, well, what's the smallest scale that humanity has even thought about? And the answer is Planck tech. Uh, at the Planck scale, Planck length, Planck time. Now, the, the Planck length is 10 to minus 35 of a meter. Wow. Now, a femtometer is 10 to minus 15, right? So, so the Planck scale uh, is hugely smaller. So, uh, dreamt up the term Planck tech. So that's, that's one of my life goals, is to use string, string theory and dream up a way to compute and to do engineering at the Planck scale. Okay, now, you're probably starting to sense where I'm getting into deism. <laughs> All right, have you heard of something called the Fermi Paradox? No, I'm not familiar. No, I haven't, actually. Oh, okay. Well, that's, 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 that's in, the, well the, the Fermi paradox is interesting. Um, you've probably heard of SETI, right? S-E-T-I? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Okay, search, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the main uh, intellectual conceptual challenge to SETI is Fermi's question. Fermi was a, 
an Italian-American nuclear physicist, and he helped in the development of the nuclear bomb in, in the Second World War. Um, his wife was Jewish, and he, he went to Sweden to pick up a Nobel Prize, and then he did not go back to Italy, he went straight to America. And then he helped uh, you know, develop the, the bomb. So in the 50s, you know, after, after the war, uh, he was having a conversation with some of his friends in a research lab somewhere, and, and the friends were talking about SETI, you know, the, the whole, whole idea of uh, looking using uh, 50s. Yeah, it might be late 40s. He, it looks like he passed away in 54. So it could be the 50s. Oh, oh you're Googling it. You're Googling yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. And, okay, right. Okay, so early 50s, um, he's, he's uh, in, in the lunch uh, cafeteria or something. He's, he's having a bit of a chat with some of his uh, colleagues and friends. And uh, he made a remark that uh, is sort of critical. Um, and he's saying, okay, well, imagine that uh, out in the universe, you know, with there's trillion, trillion stars and you know, hundreds of billions of galaxies and so on, and uh, the laws of physics are the same throughout the whole universe, and virtually every star, as we know now, nearly every star has planets. So the probability of there being uh, highly intelligent life forms out there is virtually certain, right? There are probably zillions of these uh, intelligent life forms. Okay, obvious question. Where are they? Mm. Why is there... Not a single shred of evidence. Uh, of that, their that's, I, I do know this argument now. I didn't know it was called Fermi's uh, Fermi's problem paradox. Or Fermi's paradox. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. have heard the argument. You've that, heard of it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, now the the SETI guys, you know, the, their main uh, argument is that uh, let's use radio telescopes to try to detect and transmit uh, radio signals to and from other uh, advanced civilizations you know, that, that are smart enough. You know, they've, they've been through the whole Darwinian evolutionary process and they've you know, gone from single cells to multicellular creatures to uh, intelligent creatures with brains and consciousness and language and then science and then technology and, and so on. So uh, the SETI people, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, they've been looking for decades and found nothing. Right. And, and my cynical reply to them is, you may be looking in the wrong direction, the wrong way. Maybe hmm. SETI is not the way to go. Maybe, just maybe, no, I may be way wrong, of course, but uh, maybe the way to go is SIPI, S. I P I C P, and that stands for search for infra. That means within, right? Mm -hmm. Infra particle intelligence. Interesting. Hmm. Would a like a a term that people might be able to to grasp? Could it be termed like interdimensional, perhaps? Mm, well, yeah. Well, for me, it's just a label, right? Right. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm trying you, to... You, yeah you could. You could. Okay. But um, I like just for fun. Uh, a couple of days ago, I just I, I you know I, I just typed in Sippy uh, just just to see what the hit count was on Google, and uh, thousands. Oh wow. hundreds. Okay. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, hundreds of thousands. I, I was surprised. It was a hell of a lot more than than I thought. So uh, the idea seems to be catching on. Anyway, you can see you can see the argument, right? So. Uh, it's quite possible that uh, at these tiny, tiny scales, as you get uh, smaller, you get faster, right? Mm -hmm. So the, like I, I can imagine that if humanity does decide to build these artifacts, 
then very probably they would be uh, nanotech-based because, you know, that's all humanity can do at the moment, right, nanotech. Uh, they'd probably be quantum computers. Uh, have, do you know what that is, sort of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've touched on it, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so the capacities would be just huge, exponentially greater than what classical computers can do. Like today's computers basically can only do one thing at a time. But a quantum computer can do exponentially more uh, at the same time than a classical computer. So, so I can imagine these artleks, if, if humanity decides to build them, would be uh, nanotech-based and quantum computers. But now, if they can think a million times faster and they're really smart and you know, hugely smarter than humans, then obviously they would uh, pretty quickly discover that they could um, reach vastly superior performance levels if they scaled down. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. they went to small scales. So then they would go from um, femto level to, uh, sorry, they'd go from nano level to femto level. So, so, in, in, um, so a nanometer scale artelect, uh, I coined a term for that, I, I just call them nanolects, right? <laughs> and so you'd have femtolects. <laughs> And then there'd be atolects and so on. So you can imagine that uh, if you think about the big picture, you know, the the way the cosmos look at the world, there's a trillion, trillion stars out there. And most of them are billions of years older than ours, right, our sun. And assume that uh, we we know the laws of physics are the same uh, throughout the universe, Uh, trillion, trillion stars, uh, maybe a tenth of the planets, uh, you know, water is not uh, steam, you know, it's not so hot, it's a gas, it's not so Mm -hmm. cold, it's rock solid, ice. So uh, life life is commonplace throughout the universe. It's like zillions and zillions of uh, planets have life. And a certain fraction of those, of course, would end up uh, being intelligent and then they would go, they would transition from uh, biological to intellectual, right? They'd make this transition into to massive artificial intelligence. And then they would probably uh, learn to scale down. They would scale down. And so uh, here's the punchline. Uh, the reason, the answer, I, well, my view, the answer to uh, the Fermi paradox, and this, this critical question, where are they, is simply they are everywhere but they're too tiny to see. Yeah. Mm. And they don't bother contacting us because we're just massively too primitive. We're, right. we're like a zillion, 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 zillion times too primitive. It's like, like, it'd be like human beings trying to communicate with a rock, right? I mean, a rock actually communicates. You know, it can change its form over millions of years as it decays. <laughs> but you know, no human's going to bother. So, so right. that's, that's my answer to... Um, to Fermi's paradox, and, and it connects with deism because if, if these hyper-creatures uh, th- that are all over the universe, if they're, you know, like at the moment, humanity hasn't a clue what goes on at the, uh, the bottom of a black hole. You know, it's just beyond uh, human knowledge. Uh, you know, the the, the density becomes so great, effectively, with the theories we have now, it's just the, the density of the matter becomes infinite. Now, when you get infinities in, intel, in um, 
physics, that means you've lost your theory. Your theory <laughs> no longer works. Right? It's, it's, it's failed. And so uh, the inside of a black hole at, at, at the, what's the, word, the singularity, you know, mm-hmm. and in fact, that's where the word uh, singularity with artificial intelligence came from, it was by, by analogy with physics. Right. So inside of the, the center of a black hole is a singularity, meaning it means that the density there is infinite. It's just so great. So, so we need um, new physics to describe what's going on there. Right. So there, there, may, there may be a link. Maybe, you know, who knows where these, these, these godlike hyper creatures, these, these zeptolects, <laughs> atolects, <laughs> and, uh, planklects, you know, what are they doing? Where are they? What, you know, what, what sort of things are they doing with themselves? So, so it seems to me looking at the, the future potential of what these, these artilects could do with their science is just godlike. Right? right. Just just veritably godlike. So any Terran who comes along and says, No, nah, there's no way you're going to do this then then I can I can imagine the, the, the cosmos reacting with passion. Your know, passion. Say, you're not going to stop this. This this is the destiny of the human species. This is where humanity has to go. This is the next rung up the ladder of evolution. And they get really passionate about it. And orators and philosophers will get get out there and harangue the crowds, you know, stir people. This is the way we have to go. And then the, the Terrans getting out their machine guns and saying, you exterminable monsters, you're prepared to kill off a human species. That means my family and me. You know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's just going to be so passionate that, that frankly, uh, you know, when I, I'm 67, I, I'm hoping, because my father's old, he's 94, and uh, nothing wrong with him, so I think I've got his uh, longevity genes, so I'm hoping to get into the 90s, so that will be long enough, I'm, I'm calculating, that will be long enough for me to see the debate, you know, mm. I'll definitely live uh, and see the, the, this debate raging. In fact, I see it coming uh, late teens. You know, it'll, it'll be this decade, at least uh, amongst the educated uh, level of, of people. Right. And I see it going mainstream uh, in the 20s and raging in the 30s. Now, it'll probably still be alive. But, uh, well, unless there's some radical changes in uh, longevity technology, <laughs> they'll live longer. They'll get sure. all their cells cleaned out or whatever. Uh, but, but assuming, you know, that's a really tough problem that doesn't, if I take a rather, cons- uh, what's his name? The the British guy with the long beard. What's, what's he? Oh, yeah. I, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but I know I know who you're talking about. I should know. I just, just you know, tip on the tongue. Anyway, uh, so assuming that, uh, that the, his big dream of uh, making hum- humanity immortal. Oh, Aubrey de Grey? Yeah, yeah, Aubrey, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah I know him. Um, so as, assuming that uh, that task is harder than we thought and, and takes a few more decades longer than we thought, so that means I'll probably die in my 90s. So, so I've got, I don't know, 25 years, maybe 30 years more. That, that, that will probably be long enough for me to see the debate, but I will not see the Artelect War. Now, do you... Do you do, do you know the name Ben Goetzel? He's he's one of the Humanity Plus guys. Do you know the uh, name? I, 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 the name kind of sounds familiar, but I'm not familiar with uh, his writings okay. or anything. Well, he he was president. I think he's now vice president of Humanity Plus. So uh, he's coming out. He and his father, in fact, are coming out with a book uh, on of essays, and the theme 
the theme of all the essays in the book is uh, like the lead up to the uh, the intellect or the singularity. You know, use American term. The, the sing- oh, oh, by the way, uh, is there a difference? Uh, Americans use, as I see it, Americans use the term singularity at least in two ways. One is the historical era. Uh, in which technology advances so fast that, that uh, ordinary humans can't keep up. Right? Right. So, it's the, so it's a label of a historical era. Mm-hmm. And the second meaning is just uh, the machine, you know, the, the artificial intelligence machine. Right. Whereas uh, uh, I, I don't talk much about the historical era and give it a label. I, I just concentrate on the machine itself. Right. And, and instead of using the term singularity, I, I just use the term artelect. So if you hear the term intellect, it's specifically about a machine. It's, talk, it's talking about an ultra-intelligent machine. Uh, and so if I talk about the historical era, then, well, m- maybe I'd use the term singularity. Sure, yeah, I think Ray, Ray Kurzweil, uh, who you've debated, uses uh, both as well as far as the singularity or the technological singularity uh, as okay. a, a more specific uh, a yeah, way to, right. I think, more relatable to the artelect. Okay. So... Uh, so I see, I see the artelects coming into being. Uh, the critical breakthrough is going to have, uh, well, in, in my view, uh, Ben Goetzel, he's a good friend of mine, uh, he would disagree because he's taking the engineering approach to uh, building um, A, and what's his term? AGI, artificial general intelligence. Mm-hmm. Like AI, artificial intelligence today, it's, it's really a, a bunch of narrow focused techniques like uh, Google and. Um, AI routing of cell phone calls and optimization and uh, signature checking on checks, stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of very narrow-focused narrow uh, techniques, but AGI would be general intelligence. So uh, it would be putting general intelligence into machines so, so, that, so this machine could solve uh, you know, a, a broad range of different problems. It, w- it wouldn't be very narrow and specific, like like uh, driving a car automatically, you know, having a computer control um, the driving of a car. That, that's a very specific uh, application, whereas AGI is, is, is very general. Now, sure. uh, so, so he's a good friend of mine, Ben, ben Gersel. His, his approach to doing that, to creating AGI, is uh, engineering. He just does whatever he likes. You know, he has this big book, um, Building Better Minds, or maybe he changed the title recently. But um, So he, he just takes the ideas from this book and implements them. He's got a, a team in Hong Kong, and he's trying to do that right now. Now, that's one broad approach that, that I label simply the engineering approach. Now, there's another approach, and that's um, Kurzweil and I and others, uh, uh, agree on. Uh, <laughs> uh, on the technological side, I tend to be very much in agreement with um, uh, Ray Kurzweil, but uh, on the political side, not at all. <laughs> sort mm, of polar, yeah. polar opposites. He's, he's a real optimist, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, you know, well, I'm war, the opposite extreme. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so, so they're the two broad approaches, and, and the second approach is uh, copy the brain. You just mm-hmm. learn, learn as much as you can about how the, how the brain, you know, our biological brain works, what is memory, you know, how, does this, how is the decision made, how, how, what, what's the architecture of the brain, uh, what, what's the microcircuitry of the human brain, all this stuff. So as, as these neuroscience principles become discovered, just put them into the machines. So you can imagine uh, increasingly a kind of wedding between neuro 
science, you know, neurophysiology, neuroscience, and on the other hand, neuroengineering. So in time, um, with all the massive electronics capacity that, you know, with Moore's law keeps increasing all the time, pretty soon, just a few years, uh, the neuroscience guys will be testing their theories on, on how the brain works using machines. They, they, they will be able to use programmable machines to, to you know, you, could wire, you can uh, program the wiring up of the circuitry and, and test their hypotheses using, using machines. That, you know, that, that, that will be well advanced by the end of this decade because it's already uh, well, on, you know, well on the way. Right. So, so uh, you know, yeah. we'll, 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 have, we'll have these fabulous machines. <clears throat> sure. Uh, uh, that, just yeah. to, I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're kind of running out of time here, so we okay. want to wrap it up real quickly. But just one last question for you, you know, and we can be brief about it, but should you, and you were talking about, you know, you wanted to, live into your 90s and see this uh, some of this debating and, and, and some of your theories unfold. If you had the opportunity to take, you were talking about a grain of sand earlier uh, that can you know give you infinite life and all this kind of stuff, would you take that grain of sand? I would be the first. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd probably be the millionth. <laughs> So you, you would need more uh, proof. Like, 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 actually, I haven't, I haven't committed myself, right? I, I didn't say whether personally I'm, I'm Terran or Cosmos sure, or Cyborgist. Yeah. Um, I might be Cyborgist, but I wouldn't be the first. Uh, I'm definitely Cosmist. I, I think it would be a cosmic tragedy if humanity chooses to freeze evolution mm-hmm. at, at a current puny level. As human beings, we're just nothing. We were just snuffed out in a mere 80 years. Sure. Nothing in the universe that's billions of years old. So, so at a very deep level, um, definitely cosmist. Sure. And possibly uh, cyborgist. Mm. Because, you know, if you're a cyborgist, you're effectively a, a cosmist anyway. Sure. Because, well, because it, the, the it, two are virtually the same. I do want to tell you that it's interesting from our perspective, again, as, as Christians, because we do believe in sort of a, a same ends, if you will. You know, it's just the, how to get there. And, uh, you know, we believe in a, in a supernatural God that, you know, with, with faith uh, in Jesus, that there is a eternal life. And, and, you know, even the Bible even actually interestingly talks about we will be given these immortal bodies. Uh, you know, the mortal has to put on immortality and things like that. So, uh, it's interesting that there is a overlap as far as the the ultimate goal here and the ultimate understanding of. Yeah, I, I see science, um, you know, closing the loop and getting back to traditional uh, theological questions in in religion. Like, for mm-hmm. example, personally, I'm I'm reading Aquinas. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because some of the deep questions he talks about uh, are now um, being approached by by particle physics and astrophysics, and so. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of uh, form, former former atheists uh, are really coming around now. They're, they're much more, well, deism at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know from his, you know, reading a bit of history, I know that, uh, well, that's what I read, most of the founding fathers of the U.S., they were deists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah they're strong, strongly influenced by French um, Enlightenment mm-hmm. and uh, the Renaissance and everything, so uh, you know they're probably a bit like me, a bit cynical on on the the theistic side, you right. know, the loving God. Right. But they, most of them I read, were were, were deists. So, and 
uh, that that attitude now is it's, it's I see a real um, what's the word uh, renaissance a, a rebirth uh, amongst amongst uh, the former atheist uh, physicists and so on like like the the, the creative what's the word creationists. I think they're harping on the wrong horse. They're, they're betting on the wrong horse, trying trying to discredit um, Darwinism. Uh, I, I think uh, that's probably not the way to go. Um, I, I, you know, I'm very well. Faith is too strong. I'm very open to uh, uh, intelligent design in uh, as 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 a deist, but not using biology, but but by using physics, using particle physics and astrophysics. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you, know, the, you know the anthropic principle and the mathematical principle, and the uh, oh, let, let me finish the third one. I didn't quite finish. So I'll tie that up quickly. <laughs> so, okay, so um, these these uh, hyper civilizations out there that, that are billions of years older than we are, and they're they're tiny. They're, they're really tiny and hugely performant. They're so vastly superior to us that just maybe for them to design and create a universe, maybe chicken feed, maybe nothing to them. So if these artifacts of the future, and not, and not too distant future, if they're capable of uh, designing and building universes, then who's to say that our universe is the product of some other hyper uh, intellect of the past. Right. You know, it, it's right. a possibility. So, um, the if if intellects can build universes and hence become, and by definition, become gods, well, then the whole notion of uh, of of a deity, you know, a, a universe creator, becomes so much more plausible. In fact, uh, personally, I'd, I'd like to see uh, scientists you know, look into the possibility of of, uh, of SIPI. Uh, that that instead of the laws of nature just being given, um, we we could have a real paradigm shift and start seeing the laws of nature as engineered. Mm, right. Now, when you when you start thinking in those terms, uh, religious questions and science questions they sort of merge. So 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 I can imagine um, if if uh, if somehow and it's a big if, but if somehow science could could get its hooks into, if if it could scientifically show the existence of hyper hyper intelligent creatures that actually designed the universe. Now there's all kinds of metaphysics here, of course. It's, mm-hmm. it's difficult stuff. Sure. But imagine somehow it could be done that 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 uh, science could get its hooks, its you know its methods into the uh, showing the existence of these uh, universe creating hyper creatures. That that would be wonderful for science. That would explode science. Its its horizons would would open up, you know, in in vastly greater scale. So, uh, and yeah, that's that's and that's sort of maybe a good point to stop. But that's sort of where I am at the moment. I'm I'm right. I'm just more and more open to to deism based on uh, the the possibilities of, of future technologies and future physics. Very and cool. So, so I see the high the high priests, if you like, of the twenty first <laughs> century are mathematical physicists. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doctor Hugo de Garris, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has definitely been a uh, mind blowing, mind melting, uh, just a very interesting talk with you uh, today. And I'm so glad that we overcame our technical challenges to make this happen. Um, 
Now, uh, where can we find your work or your videos or things like that? Okay. Uh, well, everyone nowadays has a website, I guess. So uh, my website URL is well, yeah, the usual HTTP colon double slash. Yeah. Prof Hugo de Garris. That's all one word. So Prof, you know, short for professor. So P R O F, and then my first name personal name, uh, Hugo, like Victor Hugo, Hugo, H-U-G-O, and then family name, it's sort of a Frenchy sounding name, so D-E, and then Garris, G-A-R-I-S. So I'll, and that's all one word, so I'll just spell it out. Prof Hugo de Garris, P-R-O-F-H-U-G-O, D-E, G-A-R-I-S, Prof Hugo de Garris. There we go. At, oh, no, sorry. It's a dot dot uh, wordpress dot com. So wordpress w o r w o r d p r e s wordpress dot com. Prof Hugo de Garris dot wordpress dot com. And there's, there's, a ton, <laughs> there's a ton of stuff there. There's videos galore. There's all my uh, YouTube lectures. There's an um, an electronic library. Um, yeah, that's just part of my effort to try to educate the world for free. Whew. So there you go, everybody. I hope that you are um, still alive. Alive. That was some very, very dense information, a lot of that. But, you know, I think it was a very good conversation. It, it was interesting to hear it from somebody's side who is a self-proclaimed cosmist and uh, avid globist. You know, you but know. I, I love the fact that he was open-minded enough to consider different possibilities, you know, and that's a good uh, indicator that, you know, not it's not this black and white sort of, right. you know, battle between ideas. It's There are people out there willing to explore some things so right and i love how uh he points out in so many words that uh science now is really pointing towards the strong possibility of a creator yeah well one step in that direction so that that's cool i think that's yeah yeah. uh interesting thing from someone in science you know deeply in in the sciences science Yeah, so make sure to go check out more of his stuff. I'm sure there's lots of good scientific learnings for you to accomplish on his website. You know, I did think it was interesting how sort of the only stereotype that he would give of the Terrans is like militant, (laughs) like uh, conservative extremists conservative you know? evangelical christians with guns well he didn't exactly say that but yes it was, it was very much a, a militant faction being the, the human beings which i mean i could see in in sort of a um in a narrative sense like if you're trying to think up the story of what's going to happen you know that's a that's a, a pretty go-to um you know archetype to have sure i, but, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are in between sort of you know they, they yeah. don't necessarily they might be victims to the conversation but yeah and i mean i could see uh, you know peaceful terrans going off into the forest and living the human life you know or something like that right sort you of a, a neo uh neo version of the amish <laughs> sure yes where the technology that they 
um, shun is not so much automobiles or televisions, but um, grains of sand <laughs> that boost your intelligence by just octillion octillions yeah exactly (laughs) so all right everybody well uh before we go make sure to go to itunes and leave us an awesome review or not uh, if if you don't want to um but either way (laughs) but you can find us on itunes most of you are listening to us from there you can also give us thumbs up on stitcher you can go to facebook um, leave a message, you know, say what's up, maybe a little comment on something, say hi, like our Facebook page. That's a that's a big thing nowadays with the youngsters. What else we got? We got a Twitter. We got a Twitter that got a Twitter. doesn't get used very often. Well, you can just, I don't know, go do that. Yeah. You know, all sorts of stuff. We're all over the place. So just make sure to connect with us, say hi, and let everybody else know uh, what's going on. So... Oh, you know, just to mention it again, there is a support tab on the website. And if you find that Canary Cry Radio at all uh, adds any value to your life or your worldview or your faith or your scientific prowess, you can go ahead and, um, you know, just show your support in that way because we do appreciate it. And we are more and more as our personal economy drops needing to... Um, use that support for the website and also um, to keep roofs over the heads of little Gons and I. Um, all right. So I think that's about it, eh? Yep. Sounds oh, good. Okay. Um, just a quick shout out to all of our international listeners. What's up, everybody? Also, America, you're cool too, still. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Not Make sure to. Well, yeah, I know. Let's, yeah. let's you know. Let's 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 just uh, bask in the glory while let's, we can. Let's leave that sleeping dragon live <laughs> okay. for a little longer. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Make sure to catch the next episode of Canary Cry Radio. And until then, think outside the cage. Uh, a, a, what is the word I'm looking for? Edit this part.